I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. <laughs> we love to watch welcomes you to the Halloween's Spooktacular. To get a jolt from my electro. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. It caught on in a flash. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The zombies were having fun. Hey, Peter. <laughs> hey, spooky Aaron. <laughs> this sounds way more like Mr. Ed than like someone scary. <laughs> I'm 100% dead now. <laughs> <laughs> My children are dead. My children's children are oh, dead. Oh, torture a horse, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> they put peanut cup. butter under my my gums every day. I'm allergic to peanut butter. I live in constant torment. Even my owner's dead because I ate him. Spooky. Spooky. Um, horse murder. That's spooky. Here's the thing, Mr. Ed's owner. No one knows his name. Yeah. He. This guy's like, I'm doing most of the work on this show. The horse just stands there, and someone <laughs> moves his mouth, and no one fucking knows my name. It's tough. Mr. Ed's Mr. Ed's owner is a real unsung hero of Hollywood, I would say. His name? Oh, Wilbur, of course. Oh, Wilbur. That's like the, that's like the whole thing. Hello, yeah, do, Wilbur. Yeah. Do you think Wilbur was a member of the Manson family? Yeah, I do. Do you know? Do you know <laughs> yeah, what? Duh. Mr. Do you know what Mr. Ed's real name was? Like the name of the horse that played Mr. Ed. His name was not Mr. Ed. He had a he had a name. He had a, and I'm not sure if it's horse. racist. Like oh. it's if it is, it's very subtly racist. It's just a but it's like okay, <laughs> okay. Just tell it to me. I'm bracing. Bamboo harvester. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's racist I, or not. I don't know. It just feels like a very specific job they've given this horse <laughs> for his full name. I mean, it, is that his job? Like, Bamboo it's either, harvesting, of course, of course. It's either racist a little bit, or they gave horses names of what they expected their careers to be. <laughs> <laughs> and they were completely mistaken. Oh, yes, welcome my horse, uh, people's butt sit on, and glue man. Uh, <laughs> glue man, please. We don't give them people names because animal rights isn't a thing. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, yeah, Peter, welcome. This is Halloween. I mean, it's for us, this is the 23rd, but... This is uh, Spooktoberween. And, Spooktoberween. Uh, which is the last day that we record an episode for Spooktober. Not well, kind of, because obviously, because we have eight more days of spooky watching. Oh yeah, we'll we'll do a final recap on next week. But this is like the last That's October of auditing. That's after the fact. That is. This is like the last one when we're in the, when we're in the thick of it. We're we're approaching the last weekend before Halloween. Last time we recorded before Halloween, and then after that, much like after Christmas when we were kids. There's just fucking nothing to look forward to. There's nothing to look forward to, except for Christmas horror movies. And Thanksgiving. And sledding? I don't know. I don't even have that. Yeah, you don't have snow. Uh, on the bright side, uh, you I, I don't know how I'm going to bundle my daughter up enough to take her <laughs> trick-or-treating because it's going to be 35. Jesus like, Christ. Oh, oh, three houses for you. <laughs> and then just eat all this candy that no one came for because it's so fucking cold. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So what, Peter, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. Thank you for telling me. You know, you, you're very forgetful. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't know, we normally 
We pick a theme for a month, and then we talk about about four movies over the course of the month. And if we remember, we can compare and contrast them. Uh, It's October. We just wrapped up one of the most exciting months that we've done, which is Ladies' Fright Night. I hope you go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't. But as is now our third annual uh, Spooktacular, our Halloween episode where we do something a little off the beaten path than we would normally do. And this week, we are doing, appropriately enough, Halloween, Halloween again, and Halloween 2. Yeah. Halloween. Uh, oh, Halloween 2. And Halloween also. Oh, and Halloween. Yeah. Don't forget Halloween. Halloween, Halloween, Halloween as well. Yeah. Two. So, uh, real quickly, we thought that Halloween was a sequel to Halloween 2, but it turns out we're just being stupid. It's a sequel to Halloween. Halloween is a sequel to Halloween. So if you thought that Halloween was part three after Halloween and Halloween 2, fucking dumb. Yeah. Because then it it would be called Halloween 3. We should have thought of that. Mm -mm. Not Season of the Witch is what it will be called. It would have been called Halloween 3 season uh and also it should be very clear how the halloween the one that we just saw that was in theaters is them 40 years later pretending all the sequels didn't happen starring jamie lee curtis uh which is a pretty original idea unless you remember they did literally the exact same thing 20 years ago it's like they <laughs> forgot i i can't wait first of all they should have called this one halloween h40 and i hope in 20 years they do another one that's called halloween h60 Mm-hmm. And then, God willing, Jamie Lee Curtis can pull off a Halloween H80. It'll be both her and a 80-year-old Michael Myers in wheelchairs just bumping into each other. Yeah. Uh, it is funny that everyone's really – like, this is – Halloween H20 is not a good movie. I haven't seen it since it came out. Like, it's 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 one of the better Halloween sequels, which is a very damning uh, oh, yeah. statement because a lot of the Halloween sequels as I understand it are not good but it is kind of funny that everyone's really excited about what they're doing here it's like yeah well they did that like that's how weird this series is is that the big reboot that ignores everything else stars Jamie Lee Curtis meeting up with Michael Myers again for the first time like they've already done that one other time <laughs> but you know what the reason is why is because the culture has attached themselves not just to Michael Myers but to Laurie Strode yeah and people see the movies moving away from Laurie Strode, right or wrong, uh, as wrong. a huge mistake. Yeah. Um, and whereas that's not true of Friday. That's not true of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. That's not true of, like, literally any big horror franchise. Like, even the Purge movies only have Frank Grillo for two of them. Like, yeah. But I think the Halloween series... It, it gets away from her very quickly after two. So anyway, so when we first... Which is why people keep wiping out everything from like two on. Yeah. And I've never I've never seen four, five, or six. I believe you watched four and five and were like, these are big piles of shit, Aaron. Don't bother. <laughs> yeah. For, um, uh, we'll get to it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we did mention uh, when we first started doing or first said we were going to do Halloween, we thought I had read somewhere on the internet incorrectly that this was a... Keeping Halloween 2 into the canon, it is very much not doing that. They even make a reference to the big twist of Halloween 2 uh, in the new Halloween movie that uh, that how dumb the twist was that Michael Myers is uh, brother to Lori. Uh, so but we decided because I was already going to watch it uh, for Spooktober to do 10, 15 minutes on it. I, I, it's not that good of a movie. 
There's not that much to talk about. I do think it has one master stroke, which I want to mention, and then I think we can essentially move on. But so the the plan for today is we're gonna do our little Spooktober recap. It's been about I think like twelve days since we've recorded, so I'm sure we've watched some stuff. But we have a lot to talk about. We understand that we're gonna try to get through that pretty quick. Then we're gonna talk about a Halloween from 1978. We're going to do a little almost intermission, go get popcorn uh, or something while we talk about Halloween 2. And then we're going to talk about Halloween uh, 2018, the new uh, David Gordon Green movie. And we're saying that up front because if you have not seen the new Halloween movie and it just came out when we're recording this last Friday, it'll be out a week and a half when this episode comes out. We will not talk about any of the important plot details, anything going on. We won't do any comparing and contrasting until that point until we get to the third one so feel free to listen to our discussions about halloween halloween 2 we will make a very clear spoiler wall because uh even though technically you listening to the episode is normally the spoiler wall for we love to watch we don't usually do movies that have barely been in theaters so uh we will have a pretty clear dividing line so we hope you listen up until that point uh, and then come back to it if uh once you get around to seeing it if you have not all ready. My first question to you, Peter, before we do our Spooktober recap. I thought it was kind of weird. So this movie, as we've made a lot of jokes to, is named Halloween. Mm-hmm. The original was called Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I seem to remember a couple years ago when a movie came out called Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. That was like, had another movie called Ghostbusters. People on the internet got really upset about it. And like, there was even some, like, I don't know, grumpy video game nerd who released a video saying, why couldn't you call it a different title? It's just confusing to people. And I've been I've been doing some research. It's been really weird. I haven't found people saying the same thing about this one. Do you, so, Peter, do you think my internet is broken? I think everyone on the internet is broken. Okay. There, there's uh, something weird about how when a woman does something, everyone starts questioning basic assumptions yeah. about what reality is. Are women even people? Uh, can women even bust ghosts? Just just basic questions. Like, they've remade every fucking horror franchise. Like, yeah. Friday the 13th. And, and yeah, Street, guess and what? It, Halloween is also important to people. It's not like people oh, telling people that like, oh, well, Ghostbusters, that's really important to people, but not fucking Halloween. Like, obviously, I, I think they're, I think they have pretty intense fan bases, both of them. And also calling something a ho- Ghostbusters th- 3, the one with the chicks, would be a or lie. Like, or like be- Ghostbusters 20. I think that was the – that that's that for some reason, that has stayed with me is like – because he made a big point, uh, angry video game nerd, about like maybe if they would have called it Ghostbusters 2016. But now I got to spend the rest of my life saying, oh, Ghostbusters 1984. I can't even say the title of the movie. Like – he had a 20-minute rant that was all stupid. But for some reason, that stuck with me so much because it's like, there's so many movies you have to do that for. And again, here's an example uh, that we've made a lot of jokes that has the same title but is a sequel as opposed to a reboot. And it's just, yeah, there's been been, been kind of silent. And this one's kind of dumb because it is a 20 or a 40, or 40 years later sequel. Whereas oh, yeah, Ghostbusters reboot what was a reboot a sequel. Yeah, it, w- it was a reboot, a remake. Like yeah. they, the the fucking original yeah. Ghostbusters appear in it. The living ones, at least, appear in it as completely different characters. 
Yeah, I know. I know it's probably like dumb because obviously all of those types of arguments, by their like definition, are in bad faith because he, you, he, angry video game nerd is not going to come out and go. Well, here's the problem: I don't like women, and I don't want them to star in movies because I'm a man and I like men. I like seeing men do things, and I don't like women doing things. And I, you know, like that's that's ultimately the argument. So they make up all these bullshit ones that's you know in bad faith to argue but that that one stuck in stuck in my craw and i thought this was a good time to throw it back out in this fucking in his stupid face yeah stupid it's a good thing video. to call out uh, angry video game nerd who somehow still has a massive following yeah uh disappointing stuff anyway yeah. uh yeah so peter what'd you watch we got i watched so much we to, i'm assuming you did too we got yeah i watched um another 22 movies since last time 20 of which were new <sighs> like i'm just I'm just angry. <laughs> I pulled down insane numbers this year just because, like, I don't we, have commute we do it, time. You do it every year. No, the like two, said, two years. My biggest hope for you is that you have a debilitating injury and a kid. Or both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I hope. Oh, I hope. I hope the debilitating injury is so debilitating, I die. Then I could join all my favorite spooks. Yeah, but that, that doesn't feel like a good competition, really. You would win. You just watch one movie no, and you'd win. But it's not a competition if the other person doesn't participate. Do you want to have like a TV inside my court, my casket that plays like one movie so you can watch two and technically beat me? Is that an option? Can I? <laughs> I mean, assuming I die and there. Let me talk. To... Let me talk to. Do you, do you have a? Is there a plug in my casket? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Let's. We'll, we'll we'll talk about that off mic. But I think. Yeah. I like the way your head's at. I like what you're working with. Uh, as a certain uh, band in the '90s asked. Where's your head at, at, at? Where's your head at? You know? Yeah. Oh, I know all about the basement, the jacks. Mm -hmm. um, so I watched a movie that weirdly enough redeemed a movie I hated in the first half of the month, Marrowbone, uh, The Lodgers, which weirdly enough just like got dropped in my lap and uh, it did everything that I wanted Marrowbone to do. It's like a gothic drama about a fucked up family with a curse. It's very scary. It's very minimal. Like, there's very few characters. Uh, the Lodgers is great. It's on Netflix right now. Also on Netflix, a Netflix Ridge, uh, Apostle. Yeah, I really want to see that. Gareth Evans makes his big island cult movie. Uh, there is some, like, martial arts style stuff in it, like really tightly constructed small fights, but it is nothing like the raid otherwise. Um, and it, it's very impressive. I'm so glad that he was able to pull off something on this scale with this many characters. And and it's not just, you know, the raid movies are amazing, but they are best as, you know, kinetic adventures. What were some other highlights? I did watch two anthology movies this month, and I'm not really crazy about either of them. Um, I watched Body Bags. What? Okay. And I watched Ooh, Body John Bags Carpenter and, and Tales from the Hood, too. Okay. So Tales from the Hood 1 is amazing. So you watched it as well? Uh, I watched Tales from the Hood, too. Okay. Uh, Tales you've from already the Hood, seen that. Uh, no, I watched Tales from the Hood, too. Oh, okay. So you watched it twice? No, no, no. I watched Body Bags, and then I watched Tales from the Hood, too. Got it. Two movies, one day. Yes. Um, so Body Bags Why don't you try, try it the other way? See if it makes more sense. Like Tales from the Hood 2. And then I watched Body Bags 2. Okay. <laughs> no, okay. I got it. So you watched Tales from the Hood Part 2. And then you also it's, watched It's not Body called Bags. that, but yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I really liked the first Tales from the Hood. I think it's like a genuine classic. And it's like- It's funny is I like it too. You, you like Tales from the Hood too. Oh, I, I love it too. 
It's well, I didn't good. really like Tales from the Hood too. I just oh, like I've Tales never, from the Hood. I've never seen it, but I like Tales. Did you from like the Hood it without too. having seen it? Yeah. Well, I no, I haven't seen Tales from the Hood too. But like you, I love Tales from the Hood too. Yeah. Um. So I watched both those movies. The movie called Tales from the Hood too uh, is not good. And oh, it really bummed it. me out. Uh, Body Bags is, is good enough. It's fun. But it's uh, it just feels like kind of a crappy Tales from the Crypt, which is why it was not picked up by Showtime. Um, but it is fun. There's so many horror cameos in it that, that just make it worth, like, a, I think a required viewing for horror fans. But uh, I think I gave it like three and a half stars. Like, it's it's fun, but it's not what I wanted it to be. I hope when I see it, I like Body Bags, too. <laughs> No, there's just one movie called Body Bags. Showtime did not pick up the series. Yeah. No, I hope I give it three and a half stars at least, too. Okay, cool. Uh, I watched Prevenge, Alice Lowe's oh, directorial yeah, debut. I was pretty into it. I've, ne- I've not seen that many debuts that are this assured and this this confident and mixed tones as well. And yeah. it's really funny. Yep. Um, definitely check that out. It's in a shutter. Um, I watched Larry Cohen's Q Quetzalcoatl. Oh, yeah. It's on my list still for this month. I don't know if I'm going to get to it, but... It's a big uh, kaiju monster movie kind of thing, but not really a kaiju monster movie. It's fun. It's fun. Okay. It's not my favorite Larry Cohen, but it's... Because uh, it's, your favorite is God Told Me too. God Told Me too. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but what, to, what did God ne- tell him to do? Uh, never seen the first one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of loose ends in that sequel. <laughs> um, and then, uh, surprise, sort of like The Lodgers, a movie I liked way more than I thought I was going to was The Omen 3. The final conflict. I ha- I bought that whole set mainly because it was ten dollars and I didn't own the uh, Omen on Blu-ray, mm-hmm. but also because I've I've always wanted to see um, three because of its uh, Sam Neilness. Yes, it's worth it for that. And okay. the kills are better. It's more interesting. It's more fun. It has a terrible last thirty seconds, but before the last thirty seconds, I'm pretty fucking into it. Sam Neill has a lot of great, like apocalyptic, like "Come follow me" styled monologues. He is so good at having a complete mental breakdown and being evil. So, like, that's like the only one I think of his I've seen that would fall into, or I haven't seen. That would fall into that category. So I hope I get to the Omen 3 2. I would skip Omen 2 altogether. All you know is Damien didn't die in Omen 2 because he made it to 3. But he dies in 3. There's not like an Omen 4 because this is the final conflict. (laughs) Yeah, this is the final conflict. Actually, it's credited some places as the final conflict. They played some weird name games with the series. Final conflict. No, 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 no. No, no, Sam Neill's good. <laughs> what a bunch of goofs. Um, I watched also, I had a very big surprise late month uh, watch. I was like, I should watch the last two Purge movies. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been saving the first Purge too to watch. and um, But I love the third one. I think yeah, it's the I best hate, one. I hate the first Purge, but I love the first Purge, you know? Yeah, no, the first Purge is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But the it's first big Purge, season. I've heard nothing but good things. Mm-hmm. The, the the most two recent uh, Purge movies, Election Year and The First Purge, are both terrific. I feel like the Purge movies just get better with every entry. Like, the first one is like a two-star. Anarchy is like three, three and a half. Election Year is like a four. And then First Purge is like a confident five-star. Like, I think it totally satisfies everything that it's set out to do. It's got a great set of performances. Like, it's got a 95% black cast, which is really cool. 
Yeah, it's a it's really cool. Uh, as per uh, series that I jumped into, you know, because I'm not versed in a lot of these franchises. Watching the Freddy movies kind of made me more interested in checking out other franchises. And I watched Halloween four and Halloween five. Yeah, four Mistake. is the, the definition of a meat and potato slasher. It's not that bad. Kind of the only thing interesting about it is there's a twist at the end. Halloween five is all garbage. Except for a weird-ass twist in the end. I can't say anything else about Halloween 4 or 5 because they're, like, not even in the new continuity. The mask looks shitty. Like, every part of it looks terrible. I think H2O is, like, a good three, three three-and-a-half-star movie. Probably worth it at some point. I've never seen 6, although I've heard the producer's cut is, like, slightly better. If it's got Um, Paul Rudd in it, I might check it out. And then I've always wanted to see Halloween Resurrection because I like the idea of like, what if we kill off Jamie Lee Curtis in the first five minutes and it's mostly about the internet? Like, that's all. I've never seen it. And Busta Rhymes is in it. Busta Rhymes in it? Yep, he's in it too. <laughs> we need to get to the movies. Um, uh, yeah, wrap, uh, wrap it up. I saw stuff too. I also but saw... I, but I saw stuff one last year. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, two disappointments was Ghost Stories. Uh, the Andy Nyman movie, I really, really did not like it. And then I saw Puppet, Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich, and I don't know why I thought I would like this, but it's like one of those movies that's like joyful about hurting minorities and women of color, and it's kind of weird you wanted to watch a, a straight-to-video Nazi puppet movie that's like the ninth sequel, and then you're like, hey, FYI, this movie's bad. It's like, yeah. People I mean, were like, saying hey, this is the good one. People were saying this is like the only one worth watching. I don't know who these people are. (laughs) Nazi puppets. Surely. Definitely unfriend them. And And then uh, all my friends in Charlottesville were like, this is great. (laughs) I really love the black cat. I really love the bad seed. Which black cat did you watch? The Fulci one or the uh, the one that I plan to watch from 1932? I've seen both, but the 1934 um, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff one. Both of them are amazing in it. And then I also watched Planet of the Vampires, which I like heartily recommend to you, even though I didn't give it like a very high score because it's... Have you seen it? No. I mean, there's a lot on my list I haven't gotten to yet. It's where Star Trek and Alien meet in the middle. Okay. So, and it's very weird. And I have a fan theory that all the astronaut crew are secretly Nazis and like the Nazis won the war and did their space travel. Well, spoiler to what Peter (laughs) thinks of the movie. It's, uh, it's my, it's one of those fan theories that I'm like, well, that's canon now because it's too, it's way more interesting than the actual movie. Um, but yeah, I think you're going to love it a lot. Uh, it's a Baba movie. Very pretty. Um, the rest of them aren't really worth talking about, but yeah, that's been my, that brings me to 52 with, uh, repeats and included. So I saw Sorry. 15, uh, 16, 12 new. That's not that far from me. No, I'm at, I'm at 29 new and uh, like 34, 34, 35 repeats. There's two movies that I'll mention I watched that were new that we don't even talk about, which is uh, I saw Halloween uh, and then I saw Halloween 2. Mm. Um, so you saw, watched Halloween twice. No, I saw Halloween, and then I saw Halloween 2, and then I did a rewatch, which I'm not counting, of Halloween. Hmm. Uh, other rewatches were, I saw Coraline in theaters with with my four-year-old. We also watched Goosebumps, which she loved. I really like Goosebumps. Yeah, she really wants to go see the second one in theaters. So, uh, we may give that a try. I think I might have talked about rewatching Scream on the last episode, but if not, I rewatched Scream. And then... I rewatched uh, in I did the the December the Almo. So actually, it was all the same same day. So I saw Coraline in the morning with my daughter. Then I went back for December the Almo. Then I stayed to watch Halloween 
So I was at an Alamo theater for 14 hours. Oh, God. But the marathon ended with the only one I, I hadn't seen before, which was Return of the Living Dead, or had seen before, which was Return of the Living Dead, which was just a fucking blast to watch on the big screen. And really, like, so the the movie, the three movies before that that they played were Demon Wind, Man Man, and Don't Panic, which are all the same kind of, like, enjoyment. That they're not good, but, like, they're fun and they have gore effects like they're bad movies with bad acting and bad editing, but like it's that like that tweet I shared in our horror group. Like one of the be- why horror is the best genre genres that like bad movies become fun movies, and the '80s especially, which all three of these movies are from, are littered with these like incompetent horror movies that are tons of fun to watch. And I would put all three of those movies in the, that category. The problem with the marathon was. All three of those movies are like the exact – you could show one of them and get the effect of this is an example of a gory, fun to watch, but kind of stupid 80s horror movie. And they showed three of those in a row. Uh, and so even – so Madman was was really a bummer. I didn't like it at all. But I, I liked Don't Panic, which is a Mexican horror movie that's that's hard to find and Demon Wind was a lot of fun. But then, like, Return of the Living Dead is also the same thing, except, like, competent and well done and stuff like that. But, like, again, it's it's kind of, like, dumb fun, but, like, really competently done. So, it was kind of a bummer to see, like, four of the exact same horror movies in a row, even though the experience as a whole and just seeing some stuff I never would have sought out myself was, like, worth it. I would 100% do it again next year. But, like, seeing some other people's rosters from Dismember the Alamos, it was like, oh, yeah... That's, like, a good four movies. Not, like, here's the same movie four times to varying successes. Yeah, that's kind of a bummer that they didn't mix tones more, because with four, you can be all over the map and keep people very enticed. You could do, like, a really modern one. You could do, like, a silent movie in the middle and no one would complain. And, like, yeah, it's... Yeah, it was was just... All three of those movies I saw for the first time were much better uh, by seeing them in that setting. But... Like once Return of the Living Dead came on, and even though I'd seen that many times, and I would have, I would have liked to. I, I like the idea of doing stuff that like most people in the audience haven't seen, or only half or something has. It was so clear once Return of the Living Dead came on that the audience was like just fucking super engaged, laughing differently, like on the edge of their seats. That movie is such a fun thrill ride that it's That's like a party oh, movie. it is. And then you realize like we should have had more movies like this. As opposed to, you know, six hours of incompetently act, incompetent acting and editing and storytelling is like, it's a lot. It wears on the soul. It does a little bit. So, uh, I'll go again next year. I saw uh, Horror of Dracula, which is good. The movie's awesome. Pet Cemetery for the first time. Hocus Pocus for the first time. Child's Play for the first time. Some ones that everyone's seen but me. Really liked all of them. Uh, not Hocus Pocus, but <laughs> my, my daughter liked it. Uh, and then I'll, I'll mention... Two that were two of the highlights so far, which are Night of the Demon, uh, also called Curse of the Demon. Oh, yeah. Night of the Demon is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's, yeah. Tor- it's the Tornare movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Val Luton. Uh, yeah. Val Luton production. Yep. Yeah. It's a Luton tootin' good time. It feels like a Val Luton production. Uh, and I think, do you watch I Walk with a Zombie for the first time too at some point? I did. I, I watched, we talked about it last week. But. Yeah, that and Body Snatcher. And at the end of the month, I might do Isle of the Dead and Bedlam. 
Yeah, I've always been a big uh, Val Luton fan. Uh, Cat People was like one of those first uh, Roger Ebert great movies I sought out. Uh, and this was fantastic. I saw the cut version. Um, I've So I've seen, I guess, Curse of the Demon, but I've never seen Night of the Demon. As far as I could tell, unless I bought the DVD, the uncut version was not available to rent anywhere digitally. I still loved it, but I wouldn't mind. None of those Val Luton movies are on Blu-ray except like the one that Criterion's released. So hopefully at some point Criterion releases a remastered box set. Yeah, I would love that, especially um, Body Snatcher, I think, would be a beautiful one. And Night of the Demon and Curse of the Demon, like, uh, it's one of my favorite movies. And every time every time I, I, like, am talking about them, I need to look up, like, wait, what's the longer one? And what is the American shortcut? Like, I always forget. Have you seen just the American version or... I there I got the DVD with both cuts in it okay. um, from Netflix and then I just watched whichever file was longer. <laughs> okay. So you did see so you've seen the uncut version. Yes, yes. It was so weird cuz like all of the digital platforms Vudu and Amazon their uh synopsis f- is from the uncut version. But like the runtimes are all the cut versions. So it's like for the first time they must have like copied it from the DVD box. But the DVD box is, uh, is advertising the longer version. It's bizarre. So this is it shows you how little Amazon gives a shit in these. Well, Voodoo, Voodoo sh- did, like yeah, it's clearly just like someone fed it into a thing and it went boop 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 because yeah. all of them had the same description. Uh, and then the other one is one that you recommended to me, which is the uh, Abdominal Doctor Fibes. That movie is so fun. It's so good. I. Was and I am actually I bought the sequel and I'm gonna try to watch it as like in a special add-on, uh, and I know people don't think the sequels is good, but like God, that's I think that is the highlight of my month so far. I I just fucking love that movie. Vincent Price is good. Just the whole concept of like killing people based on like the Ten Commandments and the plagues, and then it's just so bizarre and well shot and eerie. The fact that like he can't really speak. Uh, and it does like all the weird piano play. Like it is like just a weirdest shit horror movie, and that is like my sweet spot. Like let's let's be creepy not by spookiness, but by how off putting everything you're, you you see is. So great great rack from you, Peter. I love that movie. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, there's there's still some big uh, ones I've been saving that you recommended. Uh, as I said, this is my theme for the month. My mini theme is like stuff Peter's been telling me to see. So it's very uh, sweet. I'm very excited for most of these, especially pet. The fact that you liked Pet Cemetery is very heartening as well. Pet Cemetery. Well, so far, uh, Fascination is uh, and Train to Busan, and now uh, Abdominal Doctor Fibes. Hell yeah! Okay. Oh yeah. So um, hell yeah for hell two thousand hell too. So Peter, do you want to talk about Halloween? What happens? It's the night Michael Myers comes home. He goes to his old house where he killed people as a kid, like his sister. Specifically, he breaks out. He finds Lori Strode hanging around the Myers residence because she's been asked to drop off a package. Michael Myers puts on a mask, follows her and her friends, and stabs some of them, but not Lori Strode. Uh, Meanwhile, a crazy psychologist. I don't know if that's right. (laughs) Yeah, sure. 
more and more crazed as it goes along, at least by two psychologists who is obsessed with Michael Myers and believes he is a being of pure evil that should be killed, uh, saves Laurie. But at the end, monster gone, what comes next? And we're going to find out literally exactly what happens next uh, <laughs> in, in Halloween 2. But that's, I mean, you've, you've, you've seen Halloween, unless you're Douglas Lamont looking listening to this, which who the fuck knows if he's seen it. But everyone else <laughs> that is listening to this has seen Halloween. Um, it's a cable staple. Like, I saw it. It's a cape staple. It's a cape staple. I saw it voluntarily and not voluntarily, like, a dozen times growing up, two dozen times maybe, and then I got the DVD. You know what's funny? I 100% saw Halloween H2O first. Oh, God. Because I saw it in theaters because it was like – Halloween H2O was like not H2O, so much no. like a sequel to ha- – Yes. <laughs> it wasn't so much like a sequel to Halloween as like Scream revitalized horror movies. So, horror movies became the big thing in high school. And here's the thing about – I didn't know until like I was – it was later on in high school or like – college where i got into john carpenter that like halloween was good it felt like one of those movies that i didn't need to see it to have seen it you know what i mean yes like yeah like yeah he, the guy wears the mask and he kills people got you it seen it but you've seen it like my yeah. buddy had not seen star wars and until i don't know a couple years ago and then he was like i knew everything but i didn't know everything yeah and it for me like halloween didn't feel that different than like Friday the 13th or like Urban Ledger. It's a mass killer, right? Like that's that's the whole thing. It was early in the genre. And when I finally saw it in college, I think it would probably – I mean if it was college, it was like freshman year. It was pretty early because John Carpenter was a pretty quick like video store favorite of a lot of my friends. But I, I'm sure I saw stuff like They Live in the Thing and some other stuff before Halloween. And I do remember my first time watching it. And just being like, oh, this is good. This is like really, really, really good. This is not just another. This is the best. And I would say it is probably the best slasher of all time. It's like it this, is. And, this and Black Christmas are like two of the two like ones that you can say you're proudest to say are the best of all time. And it sets up like everything that was copied. Like it, I don't think I put two and two together that this was like the slasher that started Friday the Thirteenth until um, until probably like late high school, college. Like you know, because there's a there's a point if you're born after a trend, uh, especially a trend that has like uh, basically gone through cycles of popularity and died and come back. Like it takes a while, I think, for you to figure out that there was like a first. She's like, oh, yeah, slasher movies. They're just – they've always been there. Well, especially and, this was – this series, all this shit happened when you were a baby or before you were born, right? Like, yeah, I wasn't born. But boom, yeah. you probably happened five years before you were born. Uh, well, I became aware of the slasher boom when it was dying. So, like, I knew friends that wanted to rent, like, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Or, or um, I remember my some friends in elementary school freaking out about like uh, the Freddy glove that pops out at the end of uh, Jason Goes to Hell, which was like ninety two, and I would have been nine. So like really, when the slasher genre was dying the first time, and then when I was in uh, junior high, late junior high, and then high school, it was when the slasher genre came back, and it was Scream, and I know he did Last Summer, and Urban Legend, and Halloween H two O. So. It wasn't until I became a little bit more academic about my love of watching movies that I kind of both saw Halloween and appreciated it for 
how fucking good and like perfect the movie is. Like it is just perfect. It does everything right. It's a tight 90 minutes and it just, it, it really is John Carpenter making an amazing movie. Um, and then also kind of figured out its place in slasher history. It is a perfect movie. I, over the years, a few different movies have taken the the honor of being my favorite movie. They've all been John Carpenter movies. It's been Escape from New York, This, and The Thing. The Thing is the current king. Uh, and we'll probably stay that way. But Th- So you'd say Thing's king? This is the original and yet also the best. And I had the benefit and also the curse of having grown up in the post-Scream era, which meant that uh, in the sort of second, the internal knowledge that all sequels were bad and, you know, just watch the originals and then, you know, move along, got into me at that same time where I started getting involved in horror movies. So, like, I watched Friday the 13th and I watched Halloween and I watched uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and then I, like, stopped dead on all of those franchises until very recently. I just got suckered into that idea that, like, all these movies were terrible. And all the same. And uh, which is mostly true of the Halloween series minus like Halloween 3 is like not a technically good movie, but it is a great movie. It's an insane movie. Halloween 3 is still my favorite of the sequels. Yes. It's the only one of the sequels that feels truly like an artistic work, like warts and all, because it actually charts its new territory which halloween 2 feels like what it is which we'll get to that which was john carpenter being kind of bullied into making it and then writing it over the course of a night with a six pack of beer and the bitterness shows and deborah hill yes and deborah hill (laughs) um and we will talk about deborah hill's involvement here right now Deborah sure. Hill is was John Carpenter's uh, girlfriend and someone he was very professionally fascinated with. The two made for a great professional pair. Uh, she co-directed this movie in a way. All the early scenes with the girls sort of hanging out, them talking, all those scenes were written and directed basically by Deborah Hill, more or less. And, and, and it shows in the movie. That's the other thing that I love about this movie and I don't like about a lot of slashers is that it... it makes all the characters worth giving a shit about. So the movie has a low body Well, count. hold on. Hold on there, little buddy. It makes all of the uh, women characters in the movie worth caring about. Yes, yes. because Women are, and children. Yeah. Yes. And uh, the way that the that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill personalized these characters, so unique to the genre. And a lot of people, I think, a lot of people took the lessons from Friday the 13th, which is a way more cynical series. I'm not saying yep. it's like unworthy or, you know, not worth discussion, but Friday the 13th is a way more cynical series and is way more about like, let's get this meat into the grinder. Yeah. So let's talk about that because the thing I there's there's two things about this movie I really, really love that I, I don't think uh, either one, I don't think it's talked enough, about enough. So we'll start there. And then another thing which I don't think gets copied enough. Uh, for a movie that basically created an entire template for a genre a, a la like fucking Night of the Living Dead, there's like a very important part of what makes this movie so good that fucking no one copies. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. I'm going to say there's two extremely important parts that no one copies. And I wish more people would. It's really – and this includes the Halloween sequels that I've seen too. Like it is missing a very – there's two key ingredients that don't get copied enough. So – Let's talk about that after the thing I do want to mention, which is one thing I really like about this movie and its characters and the, you know, the three best friends that are kind of the core human non-Loomis focus is that they are allowed to be um, human beings with like 
thoughts and desires and like real personalities and they are not in my opinion judged for them in any way by the movie like the i think what you're getting with friday the 13th why it feels darker or like worse ethically is that there is truly an element of friday the 13th which is about like punishing sex right punishing being a kid and having fun drinking and having sex and and they're very conservative especially 80s conservative in that way where uh, the the women in this movie, PJ Souls, the other friend, like they are allowed to exist and be sexual, have desires and wants and stuff like that. And the movie never judges them one iota, which is antithetical to most slashers of the era and not just the era, like and the era after the era and probably still today. And let's talk about really quickly Sean S. Cunningham, who <clears throat> wrote and directed Friday the 13th, essentially grounded all of the kids' uh, sexual promiscuity and partying as the reason that Jason died. So something – a genuine tragedy happens because the kids were partying and then you feel less bad about the kids getting killed because – because of their negligence, a child died. And it sort of justifies that to say like, you know, when you're not you're, – when you're foregoing your responsibilities, when you're not yep. acting like an adult, bad things happen. And yes, it's very Reagan-y and it's very gross. And sorry, there is more to the slasher genre than just the, the punishing women thing because that's only true. true of a few entries. I do think though that like what eventually became of the Friday the 13th movies and – I would say a lot of slashers and copycat slashers from that era, not all, but a lot, is uh, horror movies and slashers specifically became like nudity murder delivery Yes, machines where it was like, oh, so whether Sean S. Cunningham was like, oh, I'm making a point about like irresponsibility and teenage promiscuity causing damage and then someone wanting to punish that, that's fine. But then, like, all the lazy versions that came after that, including Friday's 13 movies, is, like, you see the nudity, and then we stab them. Because, like, and that that's that's kind of how it evolved. So, and then what ends up coming out of that, of course, is, like, punishing sex, which, you know, when you look back at Halloween, it's like, yeah, these kids are having sex because that's what kids do. And it's not like the horny boys who are trying to take advantage of the women like the women have agency and they have desires too and that's yeah they're awesome and that's normal and again stuff that's so obvious or should be obvious today but like it is it still stands out as exceptional when you're watching a movie from 1978 yeah and and the reason that people remember laurie and why people keep demanding laurie come back for the movies is because laurie is an amazing character uh, she's multifaceted. She's fascinating. She's charming. She's a shy character, and that makes her relatable. So, like, there's an ar- there's an argument that like Lori would be partying the same way these girls would be if a she didn't have the responsibility she had, and b she didn't have sex anxiety or she was had you know developed in a different way than these girls yeah. and Lori is not judgmental and cruel to these girls for her friend they're her friends exactly for the sex stuff she's not judgmental to them she kind of giggles at times where she's like uh when linda is calling and she's being choked to death by michael and she thinks it's annie having sex and she's like uh, Lori's kind of like giggling a little bit on the phone she's like it's like, oh, you just called me to have sex on the phone. Like, why are you rubbing this in my face, yeah. dweeb? But she's not mad. She's just like, this is a, that was a dweeby thing to do. And on top of that, 
Lori doesn't even follow the rules of what the 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 good girl, the virgin girl, are. Well, so yeah, because she that, smokes weed. She smokes weed and loves it. Well, so that and that's my other problem. Like as much as I like Scream, I think Scream did a big disservice to this movie specifically by reducing Lori to she survived because she was a virgin. That is like a classic like correlation does not equal causation. Like yeah, she talks about how. She, you know, boys don't like her because she's smart, which is, like, its own, like, internalized misogyny and stuff like that. Like, I just actually heard a another podcast talk about this in relation to a completely different movie, but that, like, um, one of the guests was talking about when they, they – bruised their tailbone in college their freshman year in college and when they and she when she went to the doctor the doctor's like this happens all the time to uh girls in their freshman year in high school i I see it all the time because they're trying to slouch down and appear like they're not that smart because they're trying to fit in and they're trying to fit in with you know a lot of times men and men see like intelligence as like a threat so the fact that Lori is sitting here saying yeah i i'm not meeting these people because too many like men see the fact that i'm smart as like a threat to them or too intimidating because they don't want to perceive women as like superior or equal from an intelligence standpoint because that's threatening to their masculinity is like that's kind of the point the point is not she didn't break the rules of having sex and she was murdered and the reason that unfortunately persists is because of like you know, at some point you remember the joke about the movie that Scream sets up more than the movie itself when it comes to like a cultural resonance. That like as much as I like Scream and I get that probably even the makers of Scream weren't trying to reduce it because they had their own reason for manipulating it. Like it's so not in the text or subtext of the actual movie, but like that's what it kind of gets remembered for from like why Laurie survives. And it and, sucks. Yeah. And it's misogynist it, and it's garbage. Yes. I, I. It also is not good for the slasher genre, right? No. Like the idea that we as an audience are for some somehow encouraging that mode is also very uncomfortable to me. Yeah. Because like it it, it does an erasure of female horror fans and non-binary horror fans and LGBT horror fans because it's assuming that the genre is just made by or just viewed by and enjoyed by white men want to see some girls get punished for being bad girls like Madonna horror complex stuff. And yes, they do teach classes at liberal arts colleges about how, you know, bad girls get punished in these movies. But there's so much more nuance to it because that's how movies work is that different artists create different nuance. And I hate the idea that uh, the directors of Summer Party Massacre 1 and 2, both women, were somehow, you know, making a misogynistic movie just because they chose to work within the framework of slashers. I think that's bullshit. I don't think it's true. And yeah, I think that as much as I enjoy Scream, like, I think that it was too big for its own good. Yeah. And it kind of hurt. Uh, a, the imitator movies of Scream were almost all unanimously terrible. Uh, but B, uh, it kind of hurt horror for a little bit because we got those smug meta textual horror movies for a long time that were made by people that didn't seem to understand the genre that's that's 100% right because like you can say that the character of Jamie Kennedy plays in Scream is the one who's interpreting these rules and he's kind of portrayed as like an accidental stumbled onto something that fit this crime and all the other teens are like missing the point and copying those rules so I think you can make a case that like 
Scream doesn't necessarily believe that. I mean, but, all those kids that party survive and they're all drinking and yeah, you know, but, half of them are having sex and didn't get punished for it, right? But, yeah, exactly. But at the end of the day, like, that's what people, I think, take away from, like, the slasher genre, and especially these early entries, is both, like, you're right, like, they take away kind of a mocking attitude to them. Um, and some deserve it, just like any other genre. Yes. And then they take away this idea of, like, uh, that every single one of them is about how sex is bad and specifically women having sex is bad not yeah. necessarily men having sex being bad so and the way i watched this movie today um especially knowing john carpenter who's a i don't know personally but knowing john carpenter as my favorite director and from interviews and the way he talks about these movies and stuff he totally gives short shrift to this shit he's like yeah deborah hill and i created a slasher reagan movie have you seen my movies before have you ever heard me talk before like yeah uh, he's like i threw in characters like annie and linda because i knew girls like those in high school i dated girls like that in high school and i thought they were awesome yeah, and I wanted to I wanted to have like those kind of women represented in film, but not just in pornos. I don't know if he's ever said this directly, but my theory on Laurie, because hey, yeah, Laurie smokes weed and doesn't get murdered. Actually, Michael takes some stabs at Laurie that like should hit her. But for some reason, Michael misses the last second or he just gets a light slash instead of like a true flesh wound. Laurie gets real fucking lucky. She's not doomed at all. My theory with Laurie is has nothing to do with the fact that she's a virgin versus not a virgin. It's that she being someone who can't doesn't have ready access to sex is a little bit nervous or shy, a more insular person, but is still like pr- conventionally pretty, but like also like a little like too shy to really let her light shine. Like that kind of character is more relatable and more sympathetic to us than like the like Linda character who's this like sex kitten and like <laughs> like a party animal. Like that's not necessarily directly relatable to us. We can say we Well, PJ Souls is the best, so no one can relate to her. Yes. She's just <laughs> this like energy bolt yeah. through the movie. I think most people can look at PJ Souls and be like, I was like her in high school. I think more people could look at Lori and be like, I was like her in high school. Even if they were somewhere, you know, a little bit between Lori and Annie or whatever. Or Lori reminds you of your older sister or your younger sister. Lori reminds me a lot of my older sister who kind of had a lot of responsibility thrust on her and it, it kind of made her act out sometimes but also... Oh, well, hope like, you're listening. Created a lot of... Peter's got some pers- harsh words coming in. <laughs> she wanted to get off the phone with me when I was telling her I was going to see the new Halloween movie so I don't think she'll be listening to a podcast. Oh, that's fine. Oh my gosh, it's a tunnel. You're in your kitchen. Yeah, we um, built that tunnel. Maybe visit more often. I love I, I love all my sisters, but my oldest sister, yes, reminds me of Laurie Strode in a lot of ways. And sort of like when you're the oldest or you you, t- you have to take on a certain kind of responsibility, very often it makes you sort of have to act like an adult a little bit sooner. Uh, and that yeah. doesn't mean that you are detached from being a kid and you don't act a little rebellious, like you don't smoke some weed sometime. But like that's who Laurie Strode is to me. Like Laurie Strode is someone who's like shy, but she's like well i'm smart as shit and i'm an adult so i just need to power through this part of high school until i figure out the boys thing and i figure out my career thing and that's a great point i want to move into the other for all the things that gets copied in this movie there's two things that don't and it's two of my favorite parts of the movie and i wish they did we've we've talked about this before i think we talked about i forget what movie where we were like, it is kind of crazy how much this movie's been copied, and then they miss the important parts. 
Like, I think maybe it was Lethal Weapon and, and or something where we're like, like, they really just focused on the conflict part and forget that, like, they're actual real friends within 30 minutes. Yeah, they're in love with each other. By the fourth yeah. one, they're, like, in, in platonic love with one another. Yeah. There's, there's two things that make this the best slasher that no one copies. The first one is a complete lack of motivation. That's the scariest fucking thing in the world. And I don't know why more movies don't understand that. And the most infuriating example, which I may have talked about this podcast because it makes me mad, even though it's, I'm not trying to pick on the same movie, is Scream. Where in Scream, when you find out who the two killers are and what's her name, Sydney, is like, why did you do it? And fucking old Skeet Ulrich. How could I forget Skeet Ulrich? And Skeet Ulrich <laughs> is like, what if we don't have a motive? Isn't that scarier? Did Michael Myers have a motive? And you know what? In that moment, that was the scaredest, the most scared I was by Scream the first time I saw it. Because he understands 100% that it is so much fucking scarier when there's just these monsters among us who don't even have, like, a rationality that is, like, shareable. And then Scream, after understanding exactly what makes something scary, is like, actually, it's because your mom had sex with my dad. And, and like, it, it brings it down to earth. And the whole point of Halloween, the thing Dr. Loomis keeps fucking getting at is that he is not a relatable human being. There are monsters in this world. And... Us trying to humanize him actually puts us at risk. And that this person should be in a hospital. Loomis is not saying until like the fourth or fifth movie, Loomis is not saying he should be executed or whatever. Well, but he is calling him an it. Like he yes, is Loomis is a terrible him. doctor. <laughs> he, yeah, I have a note like, like good movie character, really bad doctor. Maybe there are some people that are just truly monsters that we can't ascribe motivation to and we can't hum like and human and humanization in some ways is dangerous as we have someone that i would call an actual human monster with no redeeming values as a president it's a good reminder that maybe like maybe there are just fucking monsters in the world and and by trying to like New York Times it up and go like, what do Trump voters think? What is he thinking? That actually that gives those true monsters more power because that's like our natural instinct and one of the things that i think that halloween tackles that i don't think most horror movies get into is like whether you agree with it or not whether you see that this is a movie fantasy at the end of the day uh and that's one of the reasons i don't like halloween 2's twist um i love the idea that michael myers only motivation is that he likes to see what happens when he kills people different ways and that's it like that is the 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 sliver of motivation is that this is something that he gets some almost like scientific or dog like satisfaction of doing these like murder experiments that he never verbalizes and we can't understand like he's truly a monster and very quickly that segues into the second thing which I think even the new Halloween gets wrong is like he is not a murderous rampager he does a lot of goofy shit in this movie to get reactions and see what happens. And, you know, everyone talks about, like, how good the dog head turn is after he kills uh, PJ Soul's uh, boyfriend. But, like, he's like that the entire movie. He's not, like, a rampaging monster. He's clearly intelligent. And he's, like, doing – like, him as, like, someone who almost sees human as a, a species of ants that he is, like, doing tests on. Um, but not being like a comic book villain about it, 
and just like doing it. And we like, I think that's the other thing that not enough slashers copied. So two of the best parts of the movie, he has no true motivation and he's not um, just a rampaging monster or uh, I feel like most slashers just didn't pick up those parts. And they're like the two best parts of the movie. Well, but everyone know, like, I think most people think that Lori is Michael Myers' sister, and that that's been true from two on up yeah. until this 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 uh, new one. So in this one, there's a in the first movie, there's a primitiveness, there's a minimalism in ev- in all the approach. Dean Cundey is the photographer. He shot most of Carpenter's great movies. I mean, like capital G great movies, and you shot the thing. Like Dean Cundey is like a unsung hero of of photography and how he affected horror movie. And Dean Cundey shot this movie with this like sort of pure minimalism, with these wide shots, with all this open space, and it's all it, there's no you know filters on the camera. There's it's a very pure minimal movie, and there's no narration. There's no flashbacks. It's a lot of it is recorded very rawly from first person to get us into Michael's perspective. But yet getting a peek behind those eyes doesn't give us a peek into his 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 brain, really. It just lets us know that this is the sort of actions that he might do. And that sort of primitiveness, and I mean that in a in the true anthropological sense, not in the pejorative way that the that the term primitive has taken on. Peel back some layers, let's get to the base core of where these things came from. Michael is terrifying on a primitive level. He has this fake face that doesn't read any emotion, and yet when Laurie tries to pull that mask off, he freaks the fuck out. It's like my favorite movie moment in the movie. He freaks the fuck out. And like that's actually a way for Laurie to get him off him for a few sec a few beautiful seconds, is that he like yeah. has to re- reset his mask. And then as soon as his mask is back and Loomis pops in the room with the gun to, you know, finish him off, so to speak. Michael's ready to go. He's like, he's like, well, yeah, now I, I'm primed. I'm ready to go. I just needed to get my mask back. M- Michael is so pure and simple and boiled down. And that's a simple kind of terror. The We don't really know why he did this. Um, we don't know what, what made him go bad. He's just bad. He exists. Evil exists. That's something that, like, you can teach a child about. Yeah, it's, and it's so much scarier, I think, than the alternative. Which in two, uh, two branches off the movie, the 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 series into two different paths. One, which is this movie and the sequel, Halloween twenty eighteen. That is the path that says Michael is this pure killer who just does like weird shit, and he he kills, and you know the severity of the kills might change between the movies, but he's more or less that's 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 that version of Michael. And then the and then what on the Halloween two track is a totally different path for the series. And that continues, right? Because four, five, and six, it's like his cousin or some shit. Yes. So uh, Halloween 2 takes on a different kind of terror, which is um, that you might be related to evil. You might be fated to be mixed up with this evil. And there's like a reason why he's after you. And it's something that maybe you're not responsible for, but you're like genetically tied up with this demon. And then the movies get weirder and weirder with that. Yes. Eventually he's hunting down his, his niece in four and five. And then, Six has something to do with a cult. Then he's hunting down his goddaughter. It's like, who who named you <laughs> godfather? Just a mistake. 
<laughs> Michael hunts down his ex-roommate's cousin. But he only kills his family, so he was actually pretty cool at the ceremony, but then the second it was done, he's like raising up his <sighs> knife slowly, like <sighs> But yeah, so my point is that my point is that the reason we're doing two and we're doing the sequel is that I think that the the type of horror got sent down two different paths and well, and two two recontextualizes it so much that it's like, hey, the reason that he killed his sister wasn't because this was his first experiment and she was around because you're around your family quite a bit. Uh, to recontextualize it with like he wants to kill his family. Yeah, and then yeah. and then Rob Zombie's Halloween is like, what if that's what we focus again? Like, I like the Rob Zombie some of his Halloween series, but again, like, talk about fucking missing the point. I think if you cut one and two together and cut out like a decent chunk of the Laurie Strode sister stuff and the like the entire second half basically of one. I think you have a pretty cool movie about a serial killer that you could just like just call him like yeah. Jimmy Myers or something. Like you could basically take the mask out and change his name, shuffle some elements around and make like an awesome 2-hour horror movie from from Halloween 2 and Halloween 1 by Rob Zombie and you would have something cool. But it doesn't feel like it fits in this series at all. But and I guess the problem is bigger than Rob Zombie's Halloween, which was like, hey, Mike Myers, we didn't know much about him. Let's really delve in because that's like <laughs> that's like the old Pat Oswalt joke about like the prequels uh, in Star Wars. It's like, hey, Darth Vader, you like him? What if you find out what it was like when he was a child? <laughs> no, like that. So I guess the problem is bigger than Rob Zombie. Like, but there is something culturally where. And we, we – how many jokes are there about prequels or movies that, like, give backstory where backstory is needed? But, like, it definitely – Speaking of Mike Myers, Austin Powers. Austin Powers even couldn't resist it. It was like, you got to meet his dad and uh, and Dr. Evil is his brother. The third one, they're like, why is this guy horny? <laughs> Let's really <laughs> delve in as to why he just is so fucking horny. So uh, the other Michael Myers, also, they were just like, people really need to know the Freudian uh, aspect of this. Like, they, Let's get Michael Myers and Mike Myers on the couch to see what... I don't know what that is like. Yeah, in real life, I probably do want to know more. But in movies, like, again, the Scream one just annoys the shit out of me because they get it so goddamn right. Like, they explain why Skeet Ulrich should not have a motive and why that would be better for the movie. And then they're like, here's the dumbest motive that no one cares about. And that that like that ended up being the albatross around the neck that really sunk the third one. Like, let's make it all about Sydney's brother. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> yeah, I stopped at three with the series. I like watched one and two and then I was like, you know what? I don't know if I need to see more people in this four, four is a lot of family fun. be murderers. Yeah, four is a lot of fun, but it is like, what if the whole thing was orchestrated by his her secret brother that she half brother from this her mom's tryst that she didn't know? About? It's like, why don't you guys understand why we like these movies? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's frustrating. But that, I mean, but that's it's frustrating because the movie that everyone copies from did it perfectly, and then every sequel to this. And every ripoff of this takes the wrong lessons. It's like, oh, no. Yeah, stabby, stabby. Yeah, mask. Got it. Let's find out so much about this guy. <laughs> and and I, I honestly think that 
the only the Halloween 18 part of the reason that I like love love it is because I think that it more or less took what it took a lot of the lessons from the first one. It took a lot of what I love about the first one. And then it had to modernize a lot of the concepts. Yes. We and it add in, you know, its own elements to make it its own movie. So it doesn't just feel like a Carpenter rip. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. Like pretty much none of the sequels got down to this this lean, mean, primitive sort of, of beauty. Like it's it's actually a very beautiful movie, especially especially in the Blu-ray restorations and such. Like, yeah, when I want I so the Blu-ray I have is like the first Anchor Bay one. Yeah. And it looks gorgeous. I know they've been releasing it like every other year because it's an Anchor Bay movie. I have, I have that problem with the, the with the thing where like I bought a thing Blu-ray and now they're like, hey, uh, there's been two since then. So when are you going to cough up some more I, cash, asshole? I did buy the Scream. Like I did get the Scream Factory one because it was like so good. But yeah, that Halloween Blu-ray, even the first one looks pretty good. Yeah, it does. Um, so I, I think we're really going to. I mean, here's the good part about Halloween. It's very talked about, and we have two other movies to get to. So I do think we should probably rush through some other quick stuff we want to talk about. Thankfully, like I said, it really is kind of a point A to point B movie. There's, like, almost no side plots. I do like, and and to kind of even speak to the, like, sex stuff, though, like, there is that point where PJ Souls is having sex, and, like, the Friday the 13th thing is, like, Friday would have saw them having sex, got angry, or Jason would have, and killed them. Um... And Mike Myers is a lot more like Kanye West. He's like, I'm going to let you finish. But <laughs> I'm going to let you that. finish after literally. Okay, so here's the timeline. There's two times that Mike Myers lets people finish. He's not really that patient because the guys don't take that long. Uh, with his sister Judith, they, he they sees them nice downstairs yeah. and they run upstairs. And it literally is a minute and nine seconds, I think, from like the moment they get upstairs to him running downstairs. <laughs> And then the second time with Bob and Linda, it is, yes, maybe 30 to 45 seconds. Uh, so I'm going to talk yeah. about that opening real quick. So yeah, the opening, the opening um, is inspired by Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil famously opens with this long take and Orson Welles put a lot of fucking work into it. And uh, John Carpenter was like, I want to do that too. And uh, it's this beautiful first He wanted person. to make Touch of Evil too? He wanted to make Touch Evil 2. He wanted to bring Charleston, Charleston, Charlton Heston back. Charlton and, uh, Jew. Tra- he wanted to bring Charlton Jew and Chester, back. Chesterfield cigarettes <laughs> and Charlton Jew. Touch Evil. <laughs> he wanted to bring Charlton Heston back, put him in brown face and be like, do it again. So touch, it, it's inspired by the Touch of Evil opener and it's all in first person. It's yep. incredibly complicated it's it's hard to watch because of the intensity of it and he holds a single key at a certain point and it's just going like like a tone like yeah i don't don't know what pedal he hit on that piano but it's the one that makes it go long (laughs) he hit like a sustain yeah like unlike uh unlike judith's boyfriend he hits sustain and it makes you want the scene to end because like without realizing it though it's not actively irritating, but it, like, makes you want the scene to end because you're just like, I'm so uncomfortable right now. And then he finally starts stabbing Judith and it, and it changes tones and you become horrified all over again. Yeah, we'll get into it in a second, but uh, the 2018 Halloween's riff on the single take is by far the best part of that movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's so good. It's so unnerving. You do just want it to be over. Um, that kid... 
when they rip off his mask and they're like, I, I'm assuming John Carpenter saw that kid make that face and was like, that's the face. <laughs> Let me tell you this. John Carpenter was right. That's the face. Yeah, that is the face. That is the perfect face of Michael Myers after he is caught. Like, he's still holding the knife out. He doesn't look anything. He doesn't look nervous. He doesn't look scared. He doesn't look sad. He just doesn't look the way that you want a six-year-old who just stabbed his sister to death many, many times uh, to look. Yes, there's a a emptiness in the face where you're, you're like, why did he even stop? And it's just like, oh, he's just processing that this was the first time he killed someone and this is how it's going to feel every time. And that's why his parents are kind of able to capture him because I don't know if he... He just kind of walks outside, yeah. He's I don't like, even know what? if he realizes that murdering random strangers is, like, an option. Uh, so the only thing I have left and uh, talk about, and then we can, uh, if you have anything left, and then we'll move on to Halloween 2, is just something I think we, we've mentioned a few times. We watch a lot of horror movies. It's extremely hard to be scary during the daytime, or at least to the level of how scary it is at night. I actually think the scariest scenes in this movie happen during the day. Which is all of the stalking that Michael Myers does to Laurie, uh, the quick shots of him, you know, behind the uh, clothesline and jumping out of the fence from a distance. Like, there is something wholly unnerving and it's all just in, like, the brightest, brightest light. And somehow, I think most of that stuff ends up getting under my skin more than uh, later on in the movie when it's nighttime. I want to add on that a little bit. I watched four in in this order, uh, Halloween 18, 4, 5, 2, and then 1. That uh, is the – that's the machete cut. That's the kitchen <laughs> knife cut. <laughs> I watched in that order and nothing in any of the other movies – and I love the 18 version. Nothing in any of the other movies unnerved me the way Michael standing in the yard with all those sheets did. Like – Yeah. I – it's it's a, a byproduct of the the filmmaking. It's a byproduct of, uh, you know, the history the movie carries, yes, and some of the nostalgia. But, like, the way that they deploy Michael as he's just, like, perfectly blending in and then once you spot him, like, you can't unsee him is never done better than in yeah. one. No, and, you know, when it, when it moves to the slashing and cutting and poking – of the back half at night, like, it becomes more traditional scary. But the f- the first part is, like, you know, I, I think maybe we've talked on the show, that, like, who can kill a child is, like, the best example of, like, how to be scary and broad. Like, not just broad daylight, but, like, sweaty daylight, like, fucking desert daylight. And I think Revenge uh, does a really good job of that, the 2018 movie. Um, but this really, you know, for scenes, like, it's just... It does. It does something different. It's not like viscerally scary, like who can kill a child. Um, it's it's like David Lynchian creepy. Like you just want you want him to go back behind the bush. You don't want him to be there anymore. Like there's something inhuman and alien, and just like your eyes just don't like looking at it. And that's hard to do in broad daylight, if not impossible. Like I can't I can't think of another example that does this type of horror in broad daylight this well. I'm sure it's something David Lynch has done. I'm forgetting. But his are more shadowy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I can't think of it either. And a lot of it has to do with the score. Produ- the producers initially oh, yeah. said said that they um, – the score won the AF- AFI's like top 50. It, it was yeah. on the list of top 50 best American scores 
Yeah, I don't know who wrote the music, but it's very good. <laughs> it's so. I'm glad fucking... you laughed at that and didn't try to explain it to me. <laughs> uh, I've known you long enough. I know you're fucking with me. I also love that. Is that James Horner? <laughs> There's lots of big horns, isn't there? Alvin natural Silvestri? strings. Yeah. <laughs> Danny Elfman. You... Jerry Goldie. <laughs> Jerry Goldie. I, I bet he'd love to be called that. Okay, so they shot this movie in Pasadena. Yes, Beautiful. you can see some palm trees in certain shots. There's actually a shot that when they're showing Michael's house, they pass pass a uh, palm tree's trunk and it fills up like the whole frame. And I'm like, no non-palm tree You're looks like You're telling that. me that there's not one idiot in Hoobastank, <laughs> the town they all live in, <laughs> that tried to plant a palm tree at some point. Come on. I think it works organically. Uh, I'm not a perfect person. <laughs> but the- well, that you know why you think that. Why? Let me tell you the reason. Why? <laughs> it's you. <laughs> um, the reason's me? <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I, I, growing up, was convinced that this movie was actually shot in the Chicago suburbs or in the Illinois suburbs because- Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you had, a, of all people I know, had a good little cry when you found out it wasn't. <laughs> that seems like something you would internalize and start telling your friends about. <laughs> <laughs> so John did an amazing, and his production assistant and such did an amazing job making sure that these this fucking town looked like anywhere USA because it looks like. The Midwest, to me, it looks like where I grew up. And I think for everyone, it kind of – if you lived in a suburb where the houses were close together, it probably looks – and you didn't live in, you know, Phoenix, Arizona. It probably looks somewhat like your neighborhood, right? It, yeah, it, it absolutely looked like any town USA. Okay. So, uh, I just want to call out before we, we head out how much of a master of suspense John Carpenter is in this because, uh, A, there's a really low body count. It's really he's low. A, I'd say he's a master of horror, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's a master of horror. Would you say he's a master of puppets? Well, yeah. Do you think he's the master of his own domain? He's master of the house. Do you master think of that the John house. Carpenter doesn't <laughs> masturbate? <laughs> I certainly hope not. He so he needs to sustain his essence, his life force. You understand? No, that's Toby Hooper. Oh, got it. <laughs> Toby Hooper definitely masturbates. Let's you take one yeah. look at him, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, I've seen a couple of movies where it's all on screen. <laughs> so there's another thing. This movie is mostly bloodless. Yeah. It shows you that if you're a master of suspense, you don't need wall-to-wall violence. And if you make your characters likable enough, it feels like a genuine tragedy when they die. Yeah. And so, okay, Judith dies in whatever, four minutes. After that, it's 53 minutes until Annie's death. But because Michael's doing all his creepy, crawly, stocky shit, you're so raptured with the, the piece. And it is not until – this is crazy. One hour, 19 minutes? It's it's not until an hour and 15 minutes until Lori finds the bodies. Yeah, yeah. And she literally has a 15-minute encounter with Michael. Yeah, it's that's why – so it was like, yeah, an hour and 19 minutes she's escorting the kids out. And it's like, oh, that's – then that's it. That's like she's going to go up and the closet scene's going to happen and it's going to be over. Like she it is crazy. It, it like, fi- like literally like a 15-minute encounter with Michael Myers and that, that changed the course of her entire life. So that transitions into number two, which this is really going to be quick and then we'll go into Halloween. So two literally picks off right after. It show it's like Back to the Future two in that it shows the ending to Halloween, which PS movie, 
very hard to live up to. Uh, <laughs> don't show the ending to like one of the best horror movies of all time. And like most iconic climaxes is like you're now we're getting somewhere with part two. Um, it literally picks up right after. And then so Laura goes to the hospital. Michael Myers, as we know, disappears. Loomis is still going. Hey, he's here. Like he's not dead because Myers pulls some 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 tricks. Loomis is Loomis is sane for roughly three minutes of the first Halloween, and then every yeah. movie he gets yeah. crazier. By five, he's like he's as dangerous as Michael Myers. So yeah, <laughs> he uh, uh, so there's that. So she's like she's in the hospital. Eventually, you know, there's new people that are hearing about this case. Myers goes to the hospital. They have a standoff, kills him. You find out that um, Loomis, about an hour into the movie, finds out that the reason that we didn't need why Michael Myers is stalking her is that actually Lori Strode isn't her name. Her name is Lori Myers, and she was given up for adoption, blah, blah, blah. Are you saying the reason is you to Lori? Yeah. Oh, the reason is definitely her. And, you know, you're not a perfect person. Uh, she, Yeah. I mean, she smoked pot. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she deserved to die. Yeah. Um, so that's I mean that and there's some there's some good kills like it's a three star movie it's fine but here's kind of the one genius moment that somehow had never occurred to me ever there is a part where Lori wakes up in the hospital and everyone else knows what's going on she doesn't they start talking about Michael Myers as the killer and she's like who's Michael Myers <laughs> and and I was just like holy shit it fucking never occurred to me because, as you mentioned, it's just a masked guy who she's like, is there someone following me? And then all this stuff happens in like like 15 minutes. Yeah. All of us are like Michael Myers. Dr. Loomis is talking about Michael Myers. Like everyone in the audience knows. And I never thought about for one second that – especially with all the sequels and like everyone knows who this is. And obviously when she comes back in Halloween H2O and now the new one she's affected by it, it fucking never occurred to me that she had no idea who that guy was. And that's <laughs> like, so perfect with the fact that Michael Myers is credited as The Shape in yeah. the first movie. Um, and a lot of horror nerds will be like, it's not Michael Myers, it's The Shape. Like, fuck off. Uh, did you know, uh, did you know uh, Frankenstein – uh, it's uh, the name of the doctor. Yeah, it's yeah. also in the name of the monster because at the end of the movie he says, you know, son, take my name too. Did you know that uh, Dracula is the name of the castle? It's called Castle Dracula. <laughs> I had no idea. Did you know that uh, the Black Lagoon is the name of the Lagoon, Peter? Oh, I just refer to the creature as Black Lagoon. See, he's like, actually just like called Black the, Dynamite. He's actually just called the creature. Mm. <laughs> so got it. Like when you watch Halloween two, there's got to be a point where you're like, oh yeah, she has no, she has no clue what happened. She and this no is three years is. later in terms yeah. of production time. So Michael Myers has already been ripped off. John Carpenter has gone on to do The Fog. Uh, he's released uh, Someone's Watching Me on TV. It's like a TV Friday, movie. I mean, like, Friday the 13th has come out. Friday yes. the 13th Part 2 has come out. Like, the ripoffs are already well on their way. The burning and, has come out. And to have Laurie Strode go, who is Michael Myers? It's such an amazing little moment yeah. because, yes, he was just a – it makes it so much creepier because he was just a masked weirdo. Yeah. Like, she kind of, like, remembers hearing a story about him. Like, isn't he in some institute? Like, that whole sequence, and it only goes on for a couple of minutes, is such a brilliant piece of script writing because it honestly, it does that thing that I, I talk about this all the time because I just, I think it's a very interesting insight into how, like, human brains, like, fill in gaps, right? 
and they make all these assumptions and it's why we're like really bad at uh, explaining things to people or like uh, or thinking of things that like don't include stuff that we are making all these assumptions of. It's why it's it's uh, I don't know if you ever did this exercise in school, Peter, where like you like have to like give directions to bake a cake to someone who ha- has never uh, made a cake before. And the idea is that um, you have to tell them everything like they, 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 they don't know what to do and at all. And, you know, I remember doing it in like sixth or seventh grade. And, you know, I was like, you know, really like focused on, I got to get everything in there. And at the end, you know, the teacher's like, oh, he, how you said to cook the cake, but where do you say to put the cake in the oven? And it's like, oh yeah. Like everyone left something out, even when you were trying to like outsmart it, because we are just so used to assuming people share the same knowledge that we do. That's easy to leave thing out. And I think that stuff happens at work all the time. I think that, you know, I think it's such a common thing that people don't think about enough that like, we just make all these assumptions about other people's experiences and then don't explain ourselves or don't communicate well as a result. And I think this is really taking advantage of that, of realizing that probably everyone that saw Halloween um, never even thought about the fact of from Lori's perspective, because we're so following the killer for the movie, that this is this is just something that happens uh, suddenly and without warning and very quickly. And then it's all over and she is just left like, what the fuck just happened? The idea that she doesn't have the same perception that Michael Myers has or the audience of someone being followed and stalking and all this kind of stuff. And she had little whispers and hints of it. But like that is the only moment of that movie that is fucking brilliant. And the rest is pretty derivative. But I think that point is worth calling out because it really it really knows something about the audience that the audience probably doesn't know about themselves. Yeah, it, it, while it is making Michael a little cheaper and a little smaller, um, because if a madman could come from anywhere, there might be a thousand Michael Myers out there, right? But if a madman is just targeting you because he needed to go back to Haddonfield and kill his sister, like, you know, you take out Michael Myers, everything's probably going to be all right. <laughs> and that's that's something that the the Halloween 18 plays with and we'll talk about is that Laurie is, is not just fearful of Michael, she's fearful of the entire world. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that. But I want to talk about the production history really quickly. Yeah, um, go for so, it. So Carpenter was basically bullied into making this. Deborah Hill and Carpenter, um, who were dating during the beginning of Halloween, broke up by a rap party. He started dating Adrian Barbeau, but Deborah Hill and him stayed business partners for years uh until her death basically and him and so basically him and deborah hill got bullied because they made the fog and there was some disagreement in court about whether or not the fog was supposed to go to this guy erwin yoblins who thought that he had signed a deal with carpenter it sounds like sort of carpenter was bullied into this because yoblins wanted carpenter to come back and he felt like Carpenter owed it to him. So Carpenter basically did this movie entirely bitterly, didn't direct. A guy named Rick Rosenthal directed, sort of. We'll get to that in a second. Carpenter wrote the script in a night or a weekend, depending on who you hear the story from, with a six-pack of beer. And there's a lot of speculation that he was just drunk or he'd just seen uh, Empire Strikes Back a few years earlier. Like, there was some speculation that, like, 
basically just him shucking off a script is the reason that there's the Laurie Strode twist. And to this day, he doesn't seem that proud of it. Like, he hates the script. He has nothing but bad memories for the production here. Two reasons I want to talk about this. I I talked about the first one, where this is sort of, you know, the known horror. uh, Horror because of a past action or your connection to evil or yada yada. Also... This is John Carpenter who tried to kill Michael Myers. He was he thought that he could walk away from Michael Myers, go do the fog, go do the thing, go do a bunch of crazy shit. But he couldn't. So he made him do this. He resented it deeply and he was like, fuck it, I'm going to kill Michael Myers, which one of the good things this movie does is that at the end of it, you're pretty sure Michael Myers is dead. Like. The slasher movies after this would do way more audacious shit to kill their slasher villains than bring them back, sort of like comic books. But he sets Michael on fire. He shows you a shot of the mask melting onto his face, like the whole thing. Like, as far as we know, Michael is dead, dead, not just dead for now, dead, dead. And that's the best thing the movie does because it opened up space for Halloween, Halloween 3. three. Yeah. And then uh, that didn't perform. And then they doubled back for Halloween 4 for a cheap cash in. That's kind of the story is that is that John Carpenter's bitterness about this movie uh, shines through. And it also shines through in a way that's people's biggest criticism in this movie is that it is very brutal at times. It's very, it's very brutal. And it it is kind of unexpected to have a movie pick up literally right after the last one ended i mentioned back to the future part two which is like the only other one i can think of that literally picks up the minute after the previous one ended yeah um and our own previous guest carrie nelson um i actually read her letterbox review and she makes a very valid point about why that's that's really challenging for the viewer even if it's an interesting uh, decision and i'm not reading this verbatim so i apologize if i butcher this but uh it basically means that like uh laurie starts and ends the movie in the same place like she starts out completely traumatized by the actions of the movie the previous movie and then she ends having gone through another trauma uh so there's like not there's not a moment from end to end where she is not um like victimized by terror and trauma um she doesn't like get her life back and then, you know, it comes up again or feels a sense of relief. And There's I think one eight-second like, shot where a boy, a cute boy smiles at her and she smiles back. Yeah. Other than and I that, think, she is a victim. She gets doped yeah. for half the movie, which is yeah. basically the movie being like, hey, this isn't Laurie's movie really until the last 15 minutes. They need to, they need a way to hand the movie off to a yeah. cast of kids that are going to get murdered. And if you think about like other movies that brought back, like one of the one of the reasons why I think Dream Warriors is so well regarded is like Heather Langkamp comes back and she's like, hey. I went through this. Now I'm going to fight back against that. And that's what Halloween 2018 does. And But this one, because of the way, you know, we get to see them process their trauma and deal with it and have some agency in, in helping either the next generation or the next people or whatever else it is or themselves fight back against it. Where in this one is just like, you're only seeing her at her most traumatized and oh, wait. She's going to get traumatized again. Um, you don't see any of the like the lorry that, you know, audiences fell in love with um, like you do in the first like hour and 15 minutes of Halloween. So great point, Carrie. Um, I hope you're listening. Uh, but that's a perfect summation to the biggest flaw in this movie. It was, there's an interesting point about the brutality. Did you know that John Carpenter 
after the movie was done, the cut came in. Carpenter didn't think it was scary. And he personally went behind the director's back and reshot all those scenes to make them gorier. Uh, no. So those scenes are actually shot by Carpenter himself. He basically took the cast back to the hospital and was like, all right, we're going to redo this bathtub scene. It's not very good. And we're going to redo this scene. It, 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 those are those really show his bitterness where he's just like, I can't be embarrassed by this movie. It just needs yeah. to it needs to make a little bit of money and I need to move on to my next project. Well, and it makes sense because at least it still has a little bit of taste of Michael Myers as like the alien poking experiments. Um, it's just it's just not as like organic. Yeah. As the first one. Um it's a lot more contrived, but again, I mean, the first one is so perfect in its simplicity. I think, I mean, the, the problem with Halloween is that when you make a perfect movie and a perfect template for the genre, you are not going to top it ever. Like, you're never going to make a sequel that's as equal. It, it's, it's just impossible because you did everything right in the first one. On that note, let's talk about the sequel that I think we would all agree does the best at trying to replicate what makes Halloween so good, um, excepting Halloween 3, which is still the best sequel. Um, sorry, everyone who really likes Halloween, but I love fucking Halloween 3. It's great. But the best direct sequel to Halloween, uh, Peter, do you want to talk? And then spoiler, spoiler, spoiler wall. Do you want to talk about Halloween 2018? Now we're talking about Halloween 2018. If you haven't seen it and don't want it spoiled, uh, because we didn't take notes. Uh, the plot of this movie, really quick, takes place after the first one, 40 years to the day. They uh, There's a couple podcasters who are uh, going to meet Michael Myers. He's about to get transferred after 40 years. Losers. He's, he's still, uh, yeah. Do I have some reservations about this movie? Because there's a podcaster named Aaron who gets killed? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's the best part for me. So, so I'm sure it was. He gets a nice um, long one, too. Yeah, he really gets fucked up. So it kind of follows like these serial podcasters or cold case type podcasters who are, uh, go to the jail to meet um, to meet Michael Myers and then go and find Lori, who's like living out in the wilderness, kind of as like a recluse uh, or hermit, I guess would be more appropriate. And they're like, we'll give you money. If you come interview, we're just trying to figure out what happened here. What's going on with this case at, right before he gets transferred? Uh, meanwhile, you find that Lori has a daughter who, like, very Terminator 2S, like, she, like, raised to protect herself from killers and the evil of the world. And uh, her daughter, played by Judy Greer as a grown-up, like, rejected that. Uh, eventually She's basically a, an apocalypse prepper. Yeah, and uh, it is very Linda, Linda Hamilton in, in Terminator 2, um, which considering who wrote this movie, does not surprise that's a touch point. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, Danny McBride is one of the people with David Gordon Green that wrote this movie, which is just uh, pretty cool. It was I, I forgot that he was involved. So when I saw him like written by Danny McBride, I'm like, oh, OK. Uh, but they have another daughter who's in high school, uh, goes to the same school that Lori did. Uh, and meanwhile, they're transferring uh, Michael Myers from prison. Very more similar than I remembered upon watching the 1978 one. The bus turns over 
prisoners escape and then michael myers this time is a little less i want to do some experiments but has uh, i would say some pent-up hostility because he's a little po'd He's a little peeled. He just kind of goes right back. He finds his mask, kills the podcasters, just kind of kills everyone in his way. There is a forcefulness and an anger to his murders that is definitely not present in um, the first one. Without explaining anything, it does feel like this is the moment he's been waiting for for so long. And he is almost like, you know, a kid in a candy shop in a lot of ways, getting to redo it. So I actually, I actually think that works really well and complements the. F- I mean, think about it. In the first movie, he's 21 years old and he gets what, like five murders under his belt? If I was him, I would have went to a bar. <laughs> One beer, please. I'm tw- I'm 21. I'm ready to party. <laughs> I'll just have um, a seven and seven, please. But yeah, he, he gets 21 years. He only gets like five kills. Then 40 years pass. He's got he's got uh, some time to make up for. So yeah, so there's uh, Karen Strode. That's Judy Greer, and then Allison is played by Andy uh, Matichek. Yeah, she's she's kind of a newbie. Yeah, she's good. But yeah, so and so she's kind of reliving the Lori situation. She has a boyfriend who's a douchebag and then a best friend who's a douchebag. Um, but obviously, once Lori is kind of like ostracized by her family, once everyone realized Michael Myers is on the loose, they uh, you kind of find out how he got out, which is like the new Dr. Loomis, which is called out pretty explicitly in the movie by saying, oh, you're the new Dr. Loomis from Lori. Uh, he's actually has been wanting to see Michael in action and lets him – Let's him loose, which is kind of implied how he got the bus turned over in the first place, which I think is a clever detail from, oh, the bus broke out again, the exact same way as the first one, Yeah, uh, that someone is literally trying to re- recreate it. Everyone ends up at Jamie Lee's bunker, which uh, they play another tense cat and mouse game, uh, but ultimately uh, the house has been set up as a trap. They defeat Michael Myers. You kind of watch him burn which as we mentioned with halloween 2 i guess doesn't mean shit Uh, (laughs) and considering that this movie just made all the money it it did like nine times its budget in its opening weekend this movie is cheap it's like 15 to 20 million dollars 10 million and it made 85 yeah so there may be a sequel (laughs) yeah even if the marketing cost was another 20 million on top of the budget like this is one of blumhouse's biggest hits in a while it's, and going, sorry, it- it's going to be one of Blumhouse's biggest hits. It's only been open for two weeks, and it, it is going to have legs. One week ab- uh, upon recording, it's two weeks upon listening. And yep. it's, yeah, it's already done. I do think that the setup for the sequel is that Allison kind of likes murdering, but maybe that's... There is that weird thing where she's holding the knife at the end uh, that she used to stab Michael Myers, and she's holding it the exact same way that kid Michael Myers is. In the first one, kind of out and bloody and like not moving it, even though they're in the car driving away at this point. So there is a little bit of like, I think that is if they were trying to like, hey, if we need to do a sequel, here's an idea. I read it as um, the that was just another reversal. So in the last act of the movie, there's a power reversal that's sort of Laurie kind of uh, flipping the cat and mouse game on Michael. And they literally she literally does things that Michael Myers does. So she gets knocked out of a window like Michael yeah. Myers does. And then she's just disappeared from the lawn. And then she shows up in the shadows with just light on her face and then stabs the fuck out of Michael. Like yeah. There's all these little reversals. I saw that as sort of like an empowerment 
uh, Maybe. shorthand for like this is people she's got the knife this is all, these three women taking back the power from Michael but you're right maybe Annie Manichek is a good actress like maybe I think they went out of their way to be like he's dead but again I guess <laughs> it doesn't matter oh, I um, hope he's actually dead and they do they just redo what they were going to do all those years ago and just be like I hope they reboot it again for H60 <laughs> I think like I said, I, every 20 years, just reboot it. I want them to just do an anthologized horror thing. Like, Blumhouse could get away with that. Like, and just like the next one's about, I don't know, uh, what if the next one's just a remake of Halloween 3? Or a sequel into it. So, Peter, I we chatted a little bit about this movie. I liked it. I gave it three and a half stars on Letterboxd. You gave it five. I liked it. I loved it. I wanted some more of it. I was kind of surprised by the disparity. There's a lot I really like. Uh, overall, I'm very positive on this movie. We talk about this sometimes. Uh, we call it the boyhood syndrome, where like because I'm going to be talking to Peter, who loves it more than I do, I, I'm going to bring up some negative stuff. Here's what I feel like we should do, because I, I do really like it. I want to bring up my problems with the movie, and then let's talk about all the stuff that we loved until the end of this podcast. How do you feel? I think we're going to be okay. And then okay. we're going to make it. So here are my problems with the Fuck movie. Fuck you. Okay. It's the end. So my problems with the movie is I feel there's I have two problems. One is an inconsistency of characterization uh, specifically related to Lori. Either it went through a lot of drafts or not enough because there feels like a, a lot of things to hang a movie on that they that I would have liked to see explore more. Uh, but instead, they kind of like, okay, well, that's a thing. And then they move on for it. And one or two of those things is fine. It feels like it piles up in this movie. We're going to talk about how much you love the ending. I try not to get bogged down in the intelligence of characters in a movie. But man, after all the shit that she had done, the fact that she's like poking guns, f uh, a rifle after she talks about how the pistol's be like. She all of a sudden feels really, really dumb. And then about how she's walking in her house trying to find Michael after all the stuff of like her being this badass survivalist who figured this shit out and has everything locked down. And all of a sudden she's like doing all these dumb things. And then the reversal, which is very good that the house was a trap. It plays a little too bit much like um, – Heath Ledger in the Joker, like, was all this part of her fucking plan? But that, like, she she knows how easily she could have been stabbed by sticking things into a closet without even being able to see if anyone's in there. Like, it, it her character is, and then there's, like, the part where she's, like, I, I thought the dinner scene was, um, was a little bit, like, are you, like, this out-of-control drunk, or are you this, like, put-together... I'm the new Loomis. Here's what we need to do. And I think some of that can be explained away with like, she is reliving a trauma that just became really real. But, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is so fucking good at this movie and she gives her all in it. And she is like, she does such a good job that there's, there's just some moments that like, they feel like they're there to fool the audience more than they are to like honor a consistency of character and that sucks when we're talking about jamie lee curtis doing an amazing job portraying laurie strobe so a survivor that's, that's a victim uh a, a hero like all yeah. of these things at once so but but like it didn't bother you when she's like throwing the gun in the closet and it's like 
what do you do? Like, this is exactly what you just talked about. Like, it, it bothered me. Everybody that learned a lesson from T2 about badass women was just like, oh, yeah, the new version of a badass woman is an uncaring killing machine, which Cameron was, like, directly commenting on in T2. With this, they're trying to do... They're trying to do a real character who has foibles and she makes fucking mistakes because she's human and Michael is a powerhouse that makes – undoes all of your plans. The movie is saying two things. It's saying that people react to trauma in in a way that sometimes can seem maybe a little too crazy, a little guarded. But it is saying that the trauma can make you stronger. But it's not saying that those two things eliminate your trauma. Right? Like, yeah. Just because the trauma made you stronger does not mean that you're trauma. So this the dinner table scene is kind of her, you know, at home, she's perfectly comfortable. She's fine telling the podcasters to fuck off. She's fine telling whoever to fuck off. During the dinner scene, that is her kind of having to come back into the adult world after being in her her perfectly organized prepper life where she controls every element and all of a sudden she's at dinner where she controls fucking nothing and she can't control Michael getting kicked out of or getting moved out of prison and she's having a breakdown because all of a sudden like she's losing control and that's why I really like it because all of her best made plans are being laid to waste by both Michael and the realities of having a family in the real world. So, but that that's a little bit undone by the next scene where she shows up or the scene before that where she shows up in the house with a gun and it's like, look, I got in here and they can shoot you from here and he's out and you need to do this. Like she planned on hunting Michael Myers. She didn't plan on having to figure out how to reunite with her family. Yeah, but she's with her family when she's she's with at her daughter's house, and she's like, again, I I just feel like, and and the same thing at the end, like I, it's not that I don't buy the idea of, like I would the idea of this, like I spent forty years trying to save myself from this, and now faced with this, like the trauma is overwhelming. But the problem with that is that she she's not overwhelmed by trauma; she just starts doing active stupid stuff. When she goes out of the basement, when everyone's safe in there and starts walking around rooms and, like, poking – like, she gives that whole speech about she prefers a pistol, like, people can't grab it and stuff like that. And then she grabs a rifle and starts sticking it in closets. Like, that – it's just a little bit too much. And and that's I'll give fine. you the like, rifle thing for sure. I feel I was watching the scene and it was like, wait, you had a shotgun. The point of yeah, a shotgun like is you, you don't really have to aim. you just talked about this. Like, why <laughs> – like, I do have a problem with – I feel like they made her stupid – Suddenly, not like trauma and emotionally overwhelmed. So that bothered me a little because like that is that is I feel like it's taking away from her character. Like she can be overwhelmed with the the magnitude of the situation. Like this is the thing her entire life that she's like thrown away for this moment. But to, to all of a sudden like, all right, I, I did this bunker. And then I think there's almost a twist where it's like, ha I had this whole thing planned. And even though I like the mechanics of him ending up in the basement and it was a trap the whole time it kind of like it's like oh wait so was she 
doing stupid stuff. The cage was like plan Z. If she could have, she would have blown. She shot Michael in the shoulder uh, earlier in the movie. If she could have, she would have shot Michael in the yard. Like, and the plan Z was basically like, if I can trap him in the basement, we have this. She would love to have shot the fuck out of Michael, blown him away upstairs, and to have kept her family without seeing any of that. Of course. But she almost makes it seem like this is the only way I'm going to be sure we already shot him all that. I just think after the end of that, she feels kind of smug about it in a Joker way because she was like, I got you, fucker. Like, that's why it feels smug is because she is smugly being like, I finally found a way to kill this guy. Yeah, fair enough. I guess I just... um. Like that that part with her sticking the rifle in the closets and like I thought that was silly too. I was watching that scene and I was like, wait, wait you were just talking about tactics. Like you had two other guns that would have been better for this. And I just feel like it's there to increase. I I hate it when movies take away from the character to build like it's a cheap trick. It is just like this is only here to to freak out the audience. It's going to suck even more upon rewatches. There is, there's nothing that's consistent with the character we've seen. And that was like, that was really, you know, in a movie that's all about like being bookends on a story and having all these like repeatable moments. The fact they did that with a fucking closet scene, I guess, annoyed me. This movie was a lightly part of a Fox controversy that's not really worth talking about because they hadn't seen the movie. And Fox is one of the most evil organizations on the planet and does not act in good faith. Um, but they, but they were like, oh, so, uh, liberal Jamie Lee Curtis is all about guns now. The the movie has tons of moments. The, the, the movie denies guns as the solution to problems. Like very often, like the movie can't just have her blow away Michael Myers and that be the end of the deal. Like she needs to jump out and tackle him and stab him using his own tools and his own tricks. Like Loomis tried to shoot him and it didn't work. Yeah. She needs to do things her way. Yeah. And Michael's way, I guess. And then my other problem, my bigger problem is that I feel like this movie has one really clear track or message or whatever else you want to call it that is kind of like commenting on Me Too in general and the way that trauma affects generations and... Um, obviously all the stuff with, um, the, the granddaughter's boyfriend and friends and stuff like that. I like what it does. I wish there had been more of it. I wish it had been a little more cohesive. It feels, and I, and I feel that way with a lot of things that are like these, these takes on material that they throw out there that then they just don't do enough with. I wish they'd either done more with them cut out a few of them because I think all of them are really interesting takes, but I just didn't get enough from any of them that it feels kind of like, Oh, and then this will be a commentary on this. And some of those are like, I think the me too one is the most successful, but the movie kind of starts out almost being like a commentary on like Michael Myers murders in the context of how murderous today's society is. Um, and our like desire to humanize everyone. That's like, that's like their friend who's like, um, well, he killed like five people, like kids die all the time. Why is everyone obsessing over this? And then there's the podcasters who are like trying to have everyone like reassess a situation that's like very clear cut and dry. I think that's a very interesting take 
to take a Halloween movie on um, because five murders were more significant in 1978 than they are now. And we do have this weird desire now to like all these murder shows and learn everything about it and wonder, question guilt, uh, question if the victims have some some guilt. And that's like the second the podcasters die, that whole thing is dropped. Oh, yeah, um, you have the, they're dead. But I know, but like, but the, the themes that they were doing are just gone. Like, that is like the first 30 minutes of the movie. It felt like that's what they were setting up. And then the second they, I get that the characters die, but that choice to like, okay, well, that's all done now. Now we're on to this meet. The mayor is a really interesting character, is like finding out facts about this movie. He doesn't want to stop anything. He's very Jaws mayor like that. But he also is like, watching and paying attention to the situation like he's a movie, which I think is an interesting thought and commentary on like the sensationalism of society and reality television. Like are people in these positions of power able to separate themselves from the reality that's happening when they want to, when they get caught up in the drama of like a real life killer. I think we see that a lot of times, like the DC sniper was a really good example of that where, um, because it was happening and everyone's like, this is so crazy. Like, I think people were watching that news story of a serial killer. And I remember this very clearly, like it was a TV show wondering who's it going to be? When's he going to get caught? And I think that's interesting. And like he is in the movie and then he disappears. There's obviously the Me Too stuff, which feels like, again, when the podcast stuff ends, the Me Too stuff comes in. Again, I, I like it. It's just it feels, again, everything, every theme or thing they're trying to hang their hat on feels half-assed and then the loomis the fake the other loomis stuff where he's like the psycho the psychologist is actually once is part of the murders like that comes out of nowhere and then he's gone and then it's just back to like i just feel like there's too much of that and i feel like either cutting it all out and just doing a straight horror movie or picking a lane and really focusing on some of these interesting ideas uh, I just feels a little overwhelming and like abandoned plots or abandoned I, themes. I didn't get any of that because I see the themes as functioning to set up the drama. So the first two things you mentioned, the podcasters and the mayor and how they both are kind of viewing this from a not just an outsider's perspective, but like an outs outsider's perspective, like almost like the, the deaths aren't real that like this isn't a real thing this is something that happened 40 years ago and it's sort of like how people view the manson murders now where they're like they forget that like a group of people were horribly horribly murdered in their home while they were having a party and like they treat it as almost like well charles manson but the way he reacted to all that was so crazy the podcasters the mayor and also uh one thing that dave the Allison's friends uh, says uh, where he says, well, Michael killed like, I don't know, like five people those years ago. Like, it's really not that big. Like more horrifying shit happens every day. And then her friends have to be like her, his two girlfriends, uh, girl space friends have to be like, shut the fuck up. The trauma was real. It doesn't matter if it doesn't rate as highly on your list. And he's yeah. like, oh, sorry, shut the, I'll shut the fuck up. That's yeah. very much tying into the Me Too stuff, which I'll get to in a second. But uh, all of that stuff ties together because it is all talking about the same thing, how modern approaches to serial killer stories and mass murders and stuff can be very distancing and very alienating to viewers to the point where they're like, oh, well, that shooting, that mass shooting only killed five people. So, like, I don't really care. Uh, and, and the entire purpose of that is to say that people often view these stories from an outsider perspective as if they're unreal 
I would love if there was a scene later in the movie where the mayor was just like shook. And he's just like, yeah, this is well, all yeah. very, I would love that. But I don't see that as a dropped thread. I see that as the mayor is just another person that's not taking Michael seriously and just sees it as another media story that's fun to follow for like he's watching a movie. Even though he actually has agency and control of the situation. And I do think those are separate because one is like one is a lack of historical appreciation and like viewing things through like a story. And another person is like watching a real time murders unfold like it's a the next episode of your tell. Like I do think while similar, I think I think those those themes are very similar. And again, my problem is not that they're not interesting or the moments aren't well done. It's like, yeah, some people uh, kind of look at historical murders like uh, like uh, like it's they're disconnected from the humanity of the situation. All right. Well, moving on. And then I don't or- see it as that at all. I see it as I see it as the movie directly. And I guess the mayor probably should have been murdered. Maybe that'll be a, a deleted scene somewhere. <laughs> see, that would have been I mean, at least that would be something besides just like. Because the mayor just fucking disappears. Like, yeah, it's, I can and, see and, that. But he was, but he was so interesting in like that whole like, yeah, this is we like how many people started viewing like these these like murderous events of a certain magnitude. We are just so trained to view everything through the the prism of entertainment, like the safe distance, news, and like we're an audience, people, not a participant. Like, like, let's like, I'm using a very extreme example, but like how many people that weren't in New York and I'll say I was a little bit like this too. When I was like 19 or I was 18 when it happened, like when, when I was watching 9-11 happened on like, you know, unfold, it was like, well, this is crazy. Who did that? Like the magnitude is so crazy and it feels like a special effect. You, you're only like, uh, analog to it is like a special effect in an action movie like destruction porn like independence day that like especially not being present and not being affected because i was in north dakota like it is so easy it's the only it's like the way that we've trained our brains and it's such an interesting concept and the mayor's in two scenes and is like oh is this gonna be a thing and it's like no it's that's that's it with that that's a thought and now it's that thought is done and again that's my problem is it just has a lot of really good thoughts but none of them are fleshed out enough i disagree because i think that the entire purpose of that theme is to serve the idea that people see these things as almost unreal because they're viewing them from a voyeuristic outsider perspective very much the way that Michael experiences kills and it's sort of the movie externalizing the first person camera shots from the first movie. Michael was watching things from this voyeuristic outsider perspective. When he's killing Judith, he's actually watching the knife. Do you notice that? Like the camera swoops over to watch. He's watching himself watch the knife, which is like so creepy. And he's watching like himself perform all these crazy, creepy, stalky things. Well, he's almost like he's almost like watching how much blood keeps getting added with each stab. Yes. And the point of all that stuff is just to entry us into the story. A lot of people are probably coming to the movie saying, isn't that kind of quaint? Just a killer that just runs around with a knife. Like, who gives a shit? There's mass shootings all the time that are worse. It's actually saying, yes, but if this happened to you in your small town, it would feel very real. And then once it's established that, it's just that's the whole reason for the theme It's just to get you into mm-hmm. the movie. If you're not fully convinced that this is a real thing, especially for horror outsiders. 
I feel like that's a very important thing to do because I feel like a lot of people watch these movies and the deaths don't matter. And the movie yeah. is taking time to say from a metatextual perspective, say the deaths really matter. Death all death always matters. Again, I, I think you're saying it's saying that. I think it's like casually mentioning it in the background and then someone goes, oh, I couldn't hear you. Could you speak up? And he's like, never mind. We're going to talk about something else now. I think it's all there, especially the scene where they're like fucking talking over Judith's grave and like and doing all this dramatic voiceover work. <laughs> it's just like it's, and then Michael's like, oh, you think this is like a fun thing to play around? Yeah. With? And then Michael immediately makes them the next target and then he gets his mask back. My criticism is not that any of these things are poorly done. I actually think they're really well done. My problem is, is that they make a very disjointed experience when the movie all of a sudden keeps starting to be about something and then the movie drops it. Like even the Me Too analogy, which is is I think the best done because it actually finishes the movie, it like kind of starts at like the 45 or 50 minute mark and then like hits it hard to the end, which is which is fine, but like that's not how themes in movies work. I disagree that it starts 45 minutes in. What would you say it, it starts as? I think it starts in the first – as soon as we see Lori, I think it starts. As soon as no, we get away I, from the podcasters, we see someone literally trying to – as soon as we see someone trying to uh, cope with and come up with with defense techniques and survival techniques from their past trauma, I think Me Too came to mind immediately. I, I think the I think the podcasters go away about thirty five or forty minutes into the movie. Like podcasters get introduced, and then we get introduced to the rest of the characters. And seeing how Laurie has like internalized her struggle and the way that uh, and externalized it on her daughter, and how the daughter was taken away from her, and all that shit, all reminded me of me too. And how like victims can become in their own way victimizers, and how there's often no wrong way to react to trauma, but definitely bottling it up and hiding from it, and 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 living making it your whole life around it is probably not the healthy way to handle it. So Judy Greer knows Michael Myers is real. Judy Greer does not deny her mother's experience, but Judy Greer lives in the fucking suburbs. She doesn't let her husband have a single gun, or she doesn't yeah. have a gun. And she's raising her daughter to be, to not be exposed to any of that, but I... Also, because her husband is already the strongest man in the world, she probably doesn't need a totally gun. Totally us. Um, I, uh, Sorry, I had to. I think you can add to like the Me Too theming, but that is also like, I, I don't mean to be reductive or dismissive of, of you saying that, but like, that is like a pretty common trope in these movies. Like, I think it becomes more, I think the explicitness to the Me Too movement becomes when you realize about halfway through like all the guys are assholes and are not saying anything worthwhile and are either abusing people or taking advantage like every every man in this movie is the fucking worst uh and that that starts about a little past the halfway point and then it becomes like very apparent that's what it's about and then you st it starts getting into more of the generational stuff and then obviously the end is this idea of like three generations of People who have been victimized by this event 40 years ago, like, taking their power back um, and stuff like that. Like, it becomes – again, I'm not I'm not saying that those moments may have not have reminded you of it. I think it gets very explicit after it drops these other themes and then it um, – and then it kind of really sticks with that for, for better 
till the end, but it just it feels like it it throw it has a few other things that it throws out and then drops completely to f- to focus on a new thing. The last act of the movie, most of the characters are dead. It's just narrowing down to a final knife point. And and us focusing in on the on the daughters makes it so much more powerful and it becomes a movie about Me Too because it's all of its other themes kind of revolve around Me Too because like, yeah, the 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 voyeurism and the um, male violence of Michael Myers and the podcasters and the, the kids saying, you know, is this tragedy even that big are all ways that are all tie into Me Too because they're all about the struggles that a survivor has to go through to survive and at the end of the movie a survivor has survived um her daughter karen has survived uh her granddaughter has survived and even though they're all dealing with this intergenerational horror this intergenerational demon they all have similar experiences they've all had to deal with People denying their experience and people not respecting them and lying to them and and men being creepy and all of that shit comes to roost in the final three minutes or the the final uh, 30 minutes where they all take on Michael Myers together. They all kind of rejoin together and use their own skills, their own interpretation of Me Too. It's not that I think the themes are undercooked. I think that it's viewed through a Me Too scope. I don't think that it's talking about the movement as a whole. I'm really glad it doesn't. It's talking about no, I don't think so either. From a, from a post-Me Too scope, which is, I think is, is very healthy. Like, hey, we're just going to accept the lessons that we've learned from all these awesome women and Agreed. move on from there. Yeah, I don't. You're you're 100 right, and I it's it's referencing it and it's making it relate, but it's not necessarily like here's a retelling of the Me Too movement. <laughs> Thank God, the perception of Mega Myers. I kind of buy, so I will say this: I do buy a little bit of this idea of that, like some of the things they say about the like, oh, was it that big of a deal, or oh, it was so long ago. Like, I think that's a really good point. I think that definitely very explicitly potentially can relate to the me too but movement or those those sentiments absolutely do from my perception i'll have to see it again i'll have to see it again too yeah i feel like you are doing work that the filmmakers didn't do and that's fine that's sometimes what you know movie watching is and stuff like that but i think it's a very good point when i was watching the movie it kept feeling like oh it's about okay interesting there oh it's not about that anymore Okay. Oh, okay. It's going to be... Oh, it's not about that anymore. Like, that was my experience watching it. And it was just... It wasn't one or two where you think it's going to be about this. Then it's going to be about this. It just feels like it does it too many times. So that and the uh, some frustrations with Jamie Lee Curtis's um, characterization only to get some cheap thrills out of the audience for a moment was frustrating. Otherwise... Um, I mean, every horror thing, everything it does, first of all, it's gorgeous. It's so pretty. And they and they kind of like modernize the Dean Cundy thing in some ways. There's not many wide shots, but they, they do a lot of um, shadows and splashes of color. And it's not muted. I love how colorful the movie is. It feels like a Halloween movie made by the people who made the first Halloween. Like, it, yes. it, it feels of a piece in a way that nothing else I've ever seen does. Like Halloween H2O 
feels like a Scream-esque take on the Halloween material. Rob Zombie's Halloween movies feel like uh, torture porn versions of the Halloween stories. This feels of a piece. And they go out of their way to... You know, they shoot in the same neighborhood, or at least they made it look exactly like it. Uh, like They shot it in North Carolina, but I had to find that out after the movie. I was like, hey, did they shoot I was in, sure like, that modern was the same Pasadena? school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really – and they, they go out of their way to bookend scenes um, that I think work. Sometimes I don't think I'd like that. But for some reason that I haven't really figured out yet, again, more viewings will help. This does not feel fan service in the way that... Yeah. Like, I think the problem with fan service is when you try to replicate a shot or a feeling, but you're not as good as the person who did it. And David Gordon Green is definitely not John Carpenter, <laughs> but at least when it comes to this movie, um, he is able to give it its due from a cinematic language perspective that it doesn't feel like a ripoff. It feels like... It's done with intent, and it doesn't cheapen the original. In a, so it, it's all just – there are so many – I mean, more references than I realized watching it before watching the 1978 Halloween where I'm like, oh, the shot of the prisoners walking around is lifted directly from Halloween – um, because it just feels so natural in the context of this own of its own movie. I agree with you. So the DP doesn't even have his fucking headshot on IMDb. His name's Michael Simmons. He did Paranormal Activity two. Oh, he did Man Push Cart with Maureen Barani. That's a really pretty looking movie. Like, but a lot of this is like he did the Whitest Kids You Know. Is he has a very mixed filmography the way that David Gordon Green does. Um, so I don't think that you could ever say like this, this, uh, cinematographer was destined to make the, the next Halloween movie. Yeah. He's not one of those people that like, he's basically been making Halloween. Why not let him make a Halloween movie? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't, I don't see many things in here that even look like genre work. He does, he and David Gordon Green and David Gordon Green has done very little genre work. Like Pineapple Express and Your Highness is basically it. And I'm not really fond of either of those movies. Obviously the former is much better than the latter, but I don't really like either of those Please. You don't um, like uh, Pineapple Express? It's fine. It's, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, it's fine. It's I mean, like I, if you're high, it's fun. And uh, I, I, you're a big Sitter fan, right? That's the one. I'm yeah, most. he doesn't make any movies I really like. I like George Washington. Oh, I, George, I, like I love George Washington. I love all the real girls. I love Joe. I love George Washington. But like Prince, Prince Avalanche is like one of the most frustrating movies I've ever seen. And like our Brandis Crisis is like a pretty generic movie that. that I watched half of on an airplane and was like, all right, I can. I think I got the gist. I'm gonna read the Wikipedia yeah, article later. He's a really good director that, like, somehow hasn't really found his voice. Yeah. Like, it's so weird. Like, he started being, like, the next Terrence Malick. <laughs> yeah. Then, George Washington and, felt like that. And then did, like, three stoner comedies to severe diminishing returns. Like, The Sitter is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And his starting point wasn't that high to begin with. And then made all these, like... Feels like 90s studio movies, like Manglehorn and Our Brand is Crisis. Yeah. Like, like, okay, yeah, sure. These are C's. No <laughs> one cares. Like, these are the, no one watches these movies anymore. And, and they're, you're not, you're, you're making like studio movies from the 90s that make $30 million. 
Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I. So they, now they make $1 million. And I love that this movie is something that feels like a passion project from someone who, you know, just reading the IMDb and stuff would just feel like he was a um, political hire. Like, maybe he made buddies with Jason Blum. But he's not. Him. Uh, what it sounds like is one of the exec producers, Ryan Turek from Shockwaves, like basically like sent an email. Is like, who the fuck has the rights to Halloween? Why don't we do that? And then uh, David Gordon Green and uh, Danny McBride stepped up and they were like, yeah, like I fucking love to do this. And they pitched and everyone was happy the whole process. Like it sounds like it was a pretty smooth production in terms of like they didn't have to fire everybody and then bring in David Gordon Green at the last minute. Um, yeah. In, th- in that sense, this is the smoothest production since the first Halloween probably. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not really a David Gordon Green fan. I, I've always loved his potential more than most of his movies. Like he seems like he's capable of making great movies. And yeah. I think he has a couple times. And I mean, obviously I really like his uh, – Probably my favorite work of his, besides George Washington, is uh, all his work on Eastbound and Down. Yes, that's also critically important to talk about here, because, like, that is where him and... It's not where him and Danny McBride met. They met in college, but um, that is where they sort of, like, fomented their relationship as, like, storytellers and visionaries. And that's, yeah. that's a really cool relationship that, like, nobody would expect out of Danny McBride. Like, how is Danny McBride not in this movie, like, cracking jokes? Yeah, there is one part that is very Danny McBride. Again, sometimes I do feel like I – you mentioned I think we watched a little bit of a different movie when we were texting about this. But, like, the cop stuff about the – Though the Bon Me. Yeah, like, it's kind of funny, but it's, like, it's at the worst fucking point in the movie to do that. Like, there's a point earlier in the movie where it there's, like – off. Yeah, there's some point earlier in the movie where there's clearly some Danny McBride style, like, naturalistic, funny dialogue between two people. I forget. The kid and the babysitter? That's right. I that's fucking all, loved it. My that's all Saul. laughing yeah. so hard. Solid gold. Like the, And that felt like Danny McBride. And it was like, this is perfect. I love this. <laughs> and I don't know if it's that funny out, outside of the context of the movie, but I was so tense good delivery. and uncomfortable yeah. that I yeah. needed that laugh. The kid's really good. The cop stuff is not that funny. It's at the worst part in the movie to like, let's cut the tension. Like, we're speeding towards the climax, motherfuckers. <laughs> like, you don't cut the tension about people talking about sandwiches suddenly. <laughs> like, yeah. for like three minutes. Like, you can't do a... Do a uh, the director's cut of Step Brothers suddenly. <laughs> it's like all these scenes that go on too long. Yeah, I agree. It happened in a weird moment. They clearly thought that they needed like a laugh because things had been tense too long and there was too many murders. And also, Danny McBride is Danny McBride, so he likes to endear you to characters with jokes, which is like you know he's he's got comedy chops. That's a great idea. Yeah. That's how he makes the death of Vicky, the the blonde friend of uh, Allison. Uh, and her boyfriend Dave so tragic is because of comedy like he writes that great scene with the little kid that's ended on that sweet little note where he she's tucked him into bed and she's like you're the you're my favorite kid that I've I've baby I babysit yeah and she's awesome and you she's so charming she's a she seems like an heir apparent to the um Linda or Annie kind of thrown like girls that are real and also like proud to be sexual because then when uh, Dave comes over she's like i'm gonna dry hump the fuck out of you tonight which is a like very funny line yeah and she definitely seems like 
she could take the spot that Allison Lohman left when she quit film suddenly. Yeah, yeah. She reminded me a lot of Allison Lohman. Yeah, she's that or, you know, make a Monroe. Like, they are yeah. kind of in that same space where I'm like, I'm, I'm going to watch I'm going to watch this actor for a little bit. Um, see what happens. Yeah, I think they're going to get big. For time, we're going to say, we're going to end it. I feel like there's one scene we need to talk about, Peter, the best scene in the movie. <laughs> I don't know if we're in disagreement on the, on the, I was, I was waiting for you to finish. Oh, the long take where long Michael take. goes through the suburbs Holy and kills all those cow. people. And again, that's a part that really works. Even though I said, hey, one thing that all the Halloween sequels get wrong is that like he's not – he's just like a murderer. He doesn't have like this personality that is established as like a weird, almost unknowable alien experimenter. But in this one, they do a really good job of setting up, hey, why that might fucking be. And he just wants his knife and he wants his mask and he wants to pick up probably what he's been sitting not talking and thinking about for so long the the yeah so he walks through he gets all his props and eventually just just walks through these houses and kills people it's all in this beautiful like probably like 8 minute single take the best one by far is when he grab goes into the garage grabs the hammer just walks straight into this house Merge this person with a hammer, grabs the kitchen knife, and just keeps walking to the next house. Like, it, he's not running, but he's walking with a purpose that we didn't see in the first movie. And I like how after all of this, like, he does slow down a little bit then. It is – but it is just like, I don't know, probably the first time you need to have an ejaculation or something. Like, it's just like, oh, my God, here we go. I'm having sex for the first time. <laughs> time to get all the sex in this. And then you're like, okay, I need a little breather. Like, I, I don't know. That's a terrible analogy because I don't want to put murdering people with knives and sex on the same on the same wavelength. But, like, it is it, – that's what it feels like. It feels like someone who's been extremely pent up. That's why, like, it works for him to act out of character and the, the scene itself is just – that's a short film waiting to happen that people just study in film school, I think. It's a wonderful sequence. It really brings you into the atmosphere of the season. It brings you – and it also helps you establish what Michael – who Michael is if you have not seen the original or you think you've seen the original but you've just seen like bits and pieces on TV or one of the sequels. Michael's not a mastermind. He's not a joker. He is a, a machine. And he's a machine that operates on this id-level sort of improvisational killing. And he goes like, oh, I could go in there and grab that knife. Um, or I can go in there and grab that hammer. And then I'll use the hammer on her. Oh, that, that knife is really more my style. Okay, now I'm going to go next door. Um, I'm going to in the window for a little bit and see what this woman's up to. Oh, she's alone. This will be easy. And then he goes through the door. Like, there's... There's an improvisational, like, stream of conscious, id-level thing going on, which really lets but you with know what... purpose. Mi- yes, but let's Michael... Let's, let's you know that Michael is acting purely on an id-level, which also is amazing for the finale, because then when Michael gets tricked, or he gets tossed off his game at all, you're like, well, yeah, I mean, he's not planning two or three steps ahead like Laurie has to. Yeah. That ending scene, too, where he stops... And just stands still while he gets burned alive is an amazing and, like, perfect ending for a killer with this much, like, magnitude as, as Michael Myers. Like, almost every, whether it's Jason, whether it's Freddy, whether it's, I mean, anyone, they get set on fire. Like, I think they've all been set on fire at least eight times. Um, they all, you know, run and scream and, like, they're on fire. 
there is something incredibly unnerving. And while it's not a copy of the original's unnerving level, it does give you that same feeling of unnervingness when you're just watching him standing there, holding the railing, staring while he burns alive without even so much as flinching. And that's a it's a brilliant moment. Like it's it's and it's a really it really picks up from a couple of the parts in the finale that I had problems with and like ends on a, just a perfect note. So I think we can get to final thoughts. Like, I don't know what final thoughts anyone needs on Halloween. It's a perfect movie. It's the best slasher movie. It created a genre. You should see it if you haven't. Yeah, there's not much to say about the first one that hasn't been said, but I think it's worth reiterating time and time again that it is a genius work. And I think that yeah. the remake is is going to be something that's going to be a classic going forward. Sorry, especially. not the remake, though. You mean Halloween. Halloween was the remake. This is the sequel. Oh, yeah. The, the You're re- thinking of Halloween. The re-sequel. This is Halloween. The reboots, reboot school. Yeah, that was called Halloween. This is Halloween, though. Oh, so, okay. So, I'm talking about Halloween, not Halloween. Okay, because you call it a reboot, and you should have said Halloween if you're talking about the reboot, but sequel is Halloween. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Sorry, continue. continue. So, which one's – no, sorry, but you said Halloween, the reboot is going to become a classic. Yeah, I meant I meant Halloween. Oh, you should have said Halloween then. Yeah, I meant Halloween is going to be – it's definitely so, sorry, a classic. So what about Halloween, though? <laughs> Oh, Hallow- the yeah, Halloween? Classic. Yeah, classic. But Halloween misses the point <laughs> a little bit. And then Halloween, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be one of the best 40 years later sequels. It's definitely the only good Michael Myers, like only really good Michael Myers featuring Halloween sequel. As we talked about with two, it's like it has one really good idea and like uh, this is fine movie. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I mean, with the, it just it. I, I've seen people say it's the Force Awakens. I mean that in a good way for the Halloween franchise, and I think that's accurate. And I, you know, it almost sucks that they killed them so definitively because I I would like to see a sequel to this movie because I think there's more to say. Like the first one doesn't have much to the you know Halloween from 1978 doesn't have much to say, and I really. For as much as my frustration that I felt like things were given the short shrift, um, I think those are all really awesome topics that haven't really been talked about too much in in horror movies. And I would have liked to see some of those themes explored more. And I, I feel like this team has a really good handle on it. Like, I do think that idea of... Like, there hasn't been a horror movie that's really addressed our obsession with, like, old murders and murder podcasts. And there there hasn't really been a horror movie done well. Because <laughs> there's definitely been a lot that's probably been about uh, kind of reality TV and the way that we view news as a form of entertainment now. Like, I don't think there's been a good horror movie on, like, that topic in relation to, like, a serial killer that's murdering people and... um yeah, I guess I, I just want more of this from these people, even if they don't do a Halloween movie. Uh, and even if I was a little disappa- disappointed that they didn't uh, didn't really stick to some concepts that I was fully invested in. I was very pleased with the new Halloween. I understand a lot of Aaron's qualms because we're too close in terms of mental thinking to not. But the power that it swept me up in was such that I don't 
know if there's a franchise like this that it's basically this and Alien that get me this excited and get me this give me such a, a pure primal level of of engagement that I can be like, well, no, that's not fucking Michael Myers. This is Michael Myers. And yet I hate most of the movies, like almost all of them. Uh, And for that reason alone, like this is something that inspires passion in people. And I love to see people get so excited about fucking Michael Myers again. And the fact that Halloween is such a pure primal experience that 40 years later, I still feel like I can show it to, you know, younger kids that aren't necessarily like they mostly watch movies after 2005, right? I feel like I can show it to my friends and be like, okay, there's not much blood, there's not much gore, like this is not what you expect horror movies to be necessarily, you know, growing up in the mid 2000s, but this is going to be one of the creepiest experiences you'll have in a movie and it'll work. Like very few movies have that power at a certain point like even the exorcist gets a little hokey or the shining gets a little hokey halloween has a pure primal quality that as long as there are suburbs as long as we're living in houses close together the idea of someone just kind of making their way in the world today takes everything you got the fact that like we all have to live together and socialize with one another in a suburb and you have to pretend to like the fact that your neighbor can just walk up to your front door and it's socially acceptable um uh, next week, we're going to finish up our uh, Spooktober recaps and do Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, another fucking best movie, best horror movie. Uh, we're very excited for that because that kicks off the family that eats together movies about cannibal families. So after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we'll be doing Raw with Joey Lee Raw. as our guest, Spider Baby <laughs> with no one as our guest um, and Blood Diner with also no one as our guest. Already recorded and also goofy. Yeah, so so we're kind of sticking with horror for another month and then there'll be, I think, essentially a five-month horror break based on our current schedule. That's right. We plan ahead almost a disturbing amount. <laughs> um, so get your horror while it's hot. Get your eating people while they're hot. And yeah, this is this is the Halloween episode, Aaron. So do we want to wish them a happy Halloween or... I want to wish you a spooky one. Oh, yeah. I think that wishing people a happy Halloween is the equivalent of taking the Christ out of Christmas, but about something that actually matters. <laughs> uh, you don't have a happy Halloween. You have a spooky one. If yeah. Happy Halloween. You, you've done something terribly wrong. And may you and all your little monsters do a mash of sorts. A monster mash? A graveyard smash? <laughs> Night! folks thanks for listening to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys.
And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again. Above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.